This episode is sponsored by NewCalm, and as many of you know, I only bring sponsors onto this show whose products I truly swear by. Now, we are an overworked and underslept population, especially those of us that wear uniform for a living. And trying to reclaim some of the lost rest and recovery is imperative. Now, the application of this product is as simple as putting on headphones and a sleep mask. As you listen to music on each of the programs, there is neuroacoustic software beneath that is tapping into the actual frequencies of your brain, whether to upregulate your nervous system or downregulate. Now, for most of us that come off shift, we are A, exhausted, and B, do not want to bring what we've had to see and do back home to our loved ones. So one powerful application is using the program PowerNap, a 20-minute session that will not only feel like you've had two hours of sleep, but also downregulate from a hypervigilant state back into the role of mother or father, husband or wife. Now, there are so many other applications and benefits from this software, so I urge you to go and listen to episode 806 with CEO Jim Poole. Then download Nucalm, N-U-C-A-L-M, from your app store and sign up for the seven-day free trial. Not only will you have an understanding of the origin story and the four decades this science has spanned, but also see for yourself the incredible health impact of this life-changing software. And you can find even more information on Nucalm.com. Welcome to the Behind the Shield podcast. As always, my name is James Gearing, and this week it is my absolute honor to welcome on the show former Green Beret, coach, and aviation student, Travis Denman. Now, as you will hear in this incredible conversation, we discuss a host of topics, from his journey into the military pre-9-11, some of the conflicts he wasn't able to get to, our near deployment in Haiti, his transition story, school safety, tactical philosophy in law enforcement, leadership, and so much more. Now, before we get to this incredible conversation, as I say every week, please just take a moment, go to whichever app you listen to this on, subscribe to the show, leave feedback, and leave a rating. Every single five-star rating truly does elevate this podcast, therefore making it easier for others to find. And this is a free library of almost 850 episodes now. So all I ask in return is that you help share these incredible men and women's stories so I can get them to every single person on planet Earth who needs to hear them. So with that being said, I introduce to you Travis Denman. Enjoy. Well, Travis, I want to start by saying, firstly, thank you to the lads of the collective that brought us together on one of their episodes, right and that's up. how we met. And secondly, yeah. to welcome you onto the Behind the Shield podcast today. Thank you very much. So very first question, where on planet Earth are we finding you this morning? Currently, I'm in Central Oregon. I'm in, uh, I live in Redmond, and uh, I go to school down in Bend. I'm in an aviation program at uh, Central Oregon Community College. I'm learning how to fly airplanes. Finally using my GI Bill, man. 
Well, I want to get to that on the transition element because obviously that's a that's right. an important part to use that and actually forge a new career. But I want to start at the very beginning of your timeline so we don't jump around too much. Tell me where you were born and tell me a little bit about your family dynamic, what your parents did, how many siblings. All right. I was born in Medford, Oregon in uh, 1973. Uh, my dad was, uh, I guess, recently returned from Vietnam. He had gotten married to my mom and... Uh, was still stereotypical working in the lumber mill down in Medford. And, uh, you know, had me, things were kind of early seventies stuff was kind of probably, probably pretty financially tough. So my dad went back on active duty, joined the army when I was a baby. And, uh, and, uh, so I was raised up in a military household all the way through my graduation in high school. And I graduated from high school in, uh, Scharmbeck, Germany. And I had joined the army, the U.S. Army, when I was in Germany. So I came back to the States and uh, stayed with my grandparents for a month or so. And then I shipped out to boot camp, you know. But during my youth, you know, I was, like I said, I was a baby following my dad. My dad PCS. That's a permanent change of station for the military guys. They change duty stations, you know, roughly three to four years. And uh, so we followed him around. I lived in elementary school, I went to elementary school in Georgia, Washington, D.C., Korea, um, Washington State. I think I hit middle school. We were living in Texas, um, moved back to North Carolina. I uh, went to I was a freshman, freshman from high school. I was in North Carolina and then I moved over to Germany and I did my 10th, 11th and 12th grade years in in northern Germany and uh, graduated, joined the army over there. Um, I met my wife at that high school. Her father was also a career army guy and we met in Germany in high school. And then, uh, I joined the army. She went to college. Luckily for us, I was uh, stationed in stationed at Fort Benning, Georgia, and she attended college at Auburn university in Alabama. That's about 45 minute drive. So we were able to continue our, our high school romance into, uh, into the new army guy and college life. And uh, we ended up getting married down there. We got married in Virginia and, uh, you know, I did 22 years in the army, started out in Ranger regiment. And then I went to made a transition to special forces after about four years in regiment. And then, uh, did my first special forces assignment was the first group out in uh, Washington state did three years up at Lewis. And then I PCS over to Okinawa. I was Okinawa, Okinawa, almost five years, not quite. And then I went back to Fort Bragg as a instructor in the, in the qualification course. And then, uh, I changed group assignments and I went from for from SWIC, the training center. I went to a third group and then uh, I spent the next eight years in third group, mostly in Iraq. Um, did one trip to Afghanistan, but most of my time was spent in Iraq and, uh, I left third group to go back to the training center. I went to a kind of a specialty course that we have a hostage rescue course there. And I retired from that in 2014. Going back to your childhood, because I want to kind of walk you through all this, but um, what were the pros and what were the cons of moving around, not just states, but countries throughout your school years? Um, I think easily exposure, you know, just exposure to other stuff. It wasn't, uh, you know, 
I lived in it like I was a kid in, you know, the 70s and 80s, and it was a different time. I mean, it was not out of the question for me to, as a, you know, eight-year-old, take the bus from Weijang Korea to Seoul, Korea by myself and do something, you know, whatever. And uh, it was a little bit different for me because that, the assignment in Korea back then, um, it was it was called what they call a hardship tour. So the the service member generally would, go to Korea for one year and they'd live in the Baraton base. And it was, a, they called it a hardship tour. And uh, because my dad's the way he is, he was like, well, I'm just going to pay my own money and I'm going to bring my family over there and I'll just rent a house off post and uh, we can live off base, you know? So that's what my, my dad and mom did. And, you know, my brother and I went, well, my brother was still not in school yet, but I went to a two room schoolhouse. That was a old Quonset hut on camp Casey and, uh, you know, there was probably 25 kids in there. And uh, so we were not on the we were not part of the Department of Defense school system, even though we had a, a space on the base. Um, and, you know, traveling around there kind of as a, I guess, an expat living in Korea. You know, it was a little bit a little bit different than what might have been the, the normal the normal route. So just the exposure to, you know, real culture. Um, my dad was a medic and he had a lot of uh, rock soldiers that worked in there with him. He had a lot of Korean friends and we spent a lot of time kind of out on the, what we called the economy back then, not on base, you know, it was out in the economy doing, you know, doing stuff with the Koreans, you know, and meeting them and their families and spending the weekends with them and stuff, which was really cool. You know, and then we came back to the States, you know, move, changing schools every three years, you get used to being the new guy, I guess. And it's not really, you know, it becomes not really a big deal. You know, oh, we're moving. Okay. You know, you go to a new school, you make new friends and you just drive on, you know, just keep, that's what, that's the way things are. And I think a lot of people, and I found this out later in my life because I was raised up in it. I didn't really understand, you know, but when you get new, new soldiers or something into your unit and they haven't really experienced that lifestyle, you know, they're from the same town, grew up in the same town, never really traveled out of that town their whole life. And then, you know, they join the army they drag their, you know, their wife or their wife and kid to their new base in a new state and then they leave, you know, and then that person has no friends or whatever, you know, they have no uh, support network that's established, you know, they, it really affects them. Where I think having a military childhood, you kind of build that support network globally instead of locally, you know, um, even when I joined the army, I already knew people in multiple states, you know, different places, guys that I went to school with all over the place who were also army brats that kind of, kind of got it, you know? So it wasn't really a big deal for me when I got into the army to, uh, to experience that. In addition, my wife was a army brat also. So she had grown up, you know, in Tennessee, Panama, Virginia, like she had Germany, she had moved around as well. So when we, you know, when we became a military family ourselves and I started deploying and moving around, it wasn't, it was like, you know, the status quo. That was like what we did, you know, it wasn't really a big deal. And, uh, you know, that was, it was very beneficial to our lifestyle, I think. What about downsides of bouncing around? Were there any cons when you look back now? Mm, I think the, the one thing that I say all the time is I don't have a hometown, you know, honestly, when people ask me where I'm from, I'm not sure, you know, uh, I'm from, I'm American. I mean, that's a fact. I'm American for sure. But, you know, I love the South, bro. I love it there. There's no better food on planet Earth than down South in the States. 
And, uh, you know, right now I'm in the high desert in Oregon. It's awesome here. I love it here too. You know, there's, there's no way to like pinpoint one place that's the best, you know, but it is something to not have really a hometown, you know, when you, I mean, I'm 50 years old now and I still don't know where I'm from. You know, I'm not really sure where I'm going to settle down yet because I, there's, there's parts about this place I really love, but then it's like, man, I really miss, I miss North Carolina, man. I mean, it's nice there. And, uh, you know, so I'm not sure. There's a quote and I'm totally paraphrasing, but it's something like traveling is the enemy of ignorance or something to that effect. And I realize, you know, the, the people that I know that seem to be a lot more open-minded more often than not have just traveled a lot more. What is your perspective of that with your upbringing versus maybe when you, you first came back to the States and compared yourself to some of the people that never even applied for a passport and the matter left the country? Yeah. I think that that statement is 1000% accurate, you know? Um, and a big part of it is like, you don't know what you don't know. And, and you're never going to know it unless you're kind of exposed to it, you know, and I think that's a problem that we have a lot in America with polarization, you know, and people thinking that there's one way and that's the only way. And then believing that everybody should conform to that way, you know, and it's like those beliefs, man, the, I mean, it's ridiculous to me. It's, it's ridiculous. And we have so many examples through history where, you know, we, we were successful in living together with varied beliefs. And then somehow some, usually some man influences a certain side in a certain way to, to believe that those beliefs can't coexist. You know, I mean, Israel right now is a perfect example, you know, throughout history, if you really read it and study it, I mean, Jerusalem was filled with every religion on base or on post at one time, you know, on the earth and it was fine. You know, they lived together. Like, why do you, why, why go back to fighting? You know, why not just live together? I mean, you can pray to whoever you want to standing right next to me and I'm going to pray to whoever I want to, like, why do we have to fight about it? You know, but I think they use the religious part of it to, uh, you know, men again, they use the religious part to influence people in order to gain what they really want. And it's not, they're really, they're really not sincere in their belief of imparting religious beliefs. They want land or wealth or whatever it is. And uh, they use religion to camouflage that desire in order to get people to fight each other. See, I couldn't agree more. I know we discussed this briefly before we hit record. But one of the things that I brought up, and I'd be intrigued to get your, your perspective on it, is history has millennia of lessons like this. And one of the glaring things that, that I've seen, and let's just you know, talk about America for a second. The last two administrations that span both sides of the aisle have done nothing but force division. And mm. when you look back at history, you know, divide and conquer, whatever it is, whether it's you know the the Nazis or you 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 name any you know, the slave trade, anything, the genesis. I mean, the nucleus. Excuse me, of that is a few people wanting, as you said, the land, the power, the the money, and it always comes at the cost of the masses. Why is it that this happens over and over again, yet the, you know, the majority of the people seem to be unable to identify it until it's too late? Ignorance. That's it. It's just ignorance. You know, a lot of the people who, who are influenced by those preachers or 
imams or whoever, you know, the media in the States, you know, they just don't know both sides and they don't care to hear it. You know, that's another problem is they just don't care to hear it. You know, I would rather just hold on to my beliefs. I'm right. You're wrong. And then, you know, we'll fight to the death about it, which makes no sense at all. But, you know, it's, uh, it's really unfortunate. I mean, there's a big misconception and you even said it just now, there's two parties in the United States. I don't believe that to be true. I think there's one party in the United States and they, you know, the political elites aligned with, you know, corporate media and all those guys, they influence the masses. You know, there's no reason why there should be a 50, 50, you know, balance of power in the, in America on every topic, on every topic, you know, well, the reason that that is, is because both parties can change things based on three or four votes, one or two votes here and there. You know, if, if, if there was a third party in the mix that was viable, you know, or a fourth or a fifth, you know, these, these politicians would actually have to do some, some talking and some compromising and some, some going back and forth and figuring things out, you know, but because there's only two, they're able to maintain control of the, the whole dynamic, you know, and they don't let any other parties in. And the reason there's not more viable parties in America is because of the stranglehold that the Republican Party and the Democrat Party has on the American political system. Well, this is something that I've pointed out. And again, I'll shift the focus to the UK as well. You look at, you know, the Westminster as a bunch of rich, you know, private school educated people shouting rabble, rabble, rabble and waving papers at each other and nothing actually getting achieved. And you look at the way that we select our, for example, presidents at the moment. It's not a democracy. It's a demistocracy. You've got to be a millionaire or billionaire. And you've basically got to discard any ethics because you're going to be taking money from all these companies to get you in there. So for me, it's, it's you know, as I say, it's like going to a shit factory and expecting a cupcake. It's not going to happen if you just the same person goes through and comes out the other end. So if you were king for a day, king of the world, for example, of the whole fucking world, what can we do to change that? How can we get the people to go from apathy to educated and angry enough to demand change of the system rather than expect some messiah in a blue or red tie to change the world for us? I think that's that's the number one thing is making people realize that government or organization, however it is, perpetuates itself, right? It's always going to try to gate more and more and more for itself, you know? The United States is a great example. You know, we, our government system, constitutional republic, and uh, people forget about state government altogether. You know, really the way the, the letter of the law, every state in the union can tell the federal government to pound sand. We're not going to participate in that. We don't have to participate in that. But because of the influence of, you know, federal dollars on all these agencies and all this, you know, intercooperation, you know, the, the federal government has made the state's basically dependent upon their funding, you know, which should be illegal in my opinion, you know, states shouldn't be taking federal money, federal money should be spent on federal stuff. And if it doesn't have anything to do with, you know, Texas, like it shouldn't go there, you know, and if Texas needs money, Texas should raise the money, you know, and it should be that way for every state. And that way they wouldn't be beholden to the federal powers, you know, you know, and marijuana is a prime example of it, you know, how many states in the in the in the United States have legalized marijuana now? And how many have recreational marijuana? 
You know, and the reason they can do that is because the federal government has no jurisdiction over state law. So, yeah, it's a federal a federal crime, but they require federal agents to to go after it. And it's just not worth it to them to go try to track down everybody in Colorado or Oregon or Washington that's got some weed, you know. So the states have the power to negate, you know, idiocy from Washington, D.C., but they pick and choose what they want to fight because sometimes it helps those state reps and sometimes it doesn't, you know. But realizing that government will always grow itself is is probably the first step, you know. And we're we're really good at every time there's a problem is trying to figure out how more government is going to solve our problem, you know which is also idiocy, like government got us into the problem. We should eliminate, eliminate some of it. You know, what, what agency is it that got us into this problem? Eliminated over, you know? And, you know, I think a lot of that, even as a military man myself, you know, I spent my lifetime in and around the military. Um, you know, the, the military industrial complex in the Western world is ridiculous. It is ridiculous. You know, it is far out of control. And, you know, it's, you know, it's because of money, you know, that's what it is because of money. Well, this is what's scary for someone who has never worn a military uniform is, of course, there's a time to pick up arms, you know, whether, you know, it's an invasion of your own country, whether it's something like, you know, the Nazi regime where, you know, I mean, it truly is uh, all hands event. But then there's so many conflicts, and the one that really kind of dissuaded me from the military when I was a little boy was the Falklands conflict, which, I I mean, again, I don't know, I wasn't there, I'm not a politician, but from now, looking back, seems like it would have been possible to use diplomacy rather than all those young men dying for, you know, that one rock. And so where is the dissuasion when there's so much money to be made when we are at war to stop our arguably children being sent off, you know, to foreign countries and coming back in coffins covered in flags. Yeah. The argument is always, it's the chicken and the egg argument, you know, like um, as far as government is concerned, you know, our government spends more than any, any government in the history of the world on defense, defense. Right. And uh, if you're going to spend that kind of money on something, you kind of have to justify its existence. You can't just say we're going to spend two thirds of our of our budget on defense and then they never do anything. You know, it needs the world needs to be dangerous. The world needs to be, you know, there needs to be unrest in the Middle East and a conflict between China and Taiwan. There needs to be these things in order for us to justify the expenditure of your tax dollars on all of this defense. You know, and Maybe if we didn't have that, you know, we would talk, you know, maybe if the two guys with with pistols didn't have pistols, they would just talk it out. Maybe they'd fist fight. But after a while, they'd start talking because they get tired, you know. But, uh, you know, when you have these things, you kind of have to justify their use. Absolutely. Well, I appreciate your perspective on on all of those. I want to get back to kind of some of the attributes that you brought into the military. So. When you were in the school age, obviously you're bouncing from country to country. What were some of the sports that you were playing? Well, I was kind of like all-American kid, you know, when we were in the States. Uh, played baseball in the summer and fall football time, you know. 
Um, I played football up until middle school. And then uh, I think I got to North Carolina a little late and I didn't play. And then when I went to Germany, football kind of wasn't really a thing, you know, like, I mean, they had it over there, but like thinking that you were going to get picked up on a college scholarship or something, playing football in Europe at the time, you know, was, was ridiculous. You know, we didn't have the internet and all that. So like nobody in the States, nobody knew who you were, but uh, I started playing soccer when I was in Germany that, that first year I got there and uh, that kind of stuck on me. I really, really enjoyed it. I played for my local DOD school, you know, I played soccer for them. And I also played in a little club league in our, in our town, Oswald Schrombeck. And I also played in the indoor league there in Oswald Schrombeck. It was, it was just really fun. I enjoyed it a lot. Um, several of my classmates were successful, came back and they played college soccer. Um, I joined the army. Um, I also wrestled over there in the wintertime. That was a big part of my high school life wrestling. Um, I had an, another big influence, my wrestling coach, uh, Chaplain Brent Cossey. He was a Army chaplain, and uh, my school didn't really have a real wrestling coach at the time, so he volunteered his expertise to the school, and uh, he coached our wrestling team. And uh, he was also the 1980 Olympic heavyweight for wrestling. Um, and then in 1981, I believe he won the world championships. And 1980, the United States boycotted the Olympics because they were in Moscow. But the following year, uh, Chaplin Kossi, he beat the guy that won the gold. So odds are that he would have he would probably beat him then. Um, he was awesome human being, just a great dude, and uh, he taught me a lot. I credit him with a lot of the a lot of the suffering I went through in the military. I credit to Chaplin Kazi for showing me that you could make it. You know, if you just uh, grit your teeth and, and, and grind it out because um, wrestling is no joke. I think probably every I would I would love it if every American boy wrestled because I think it would teach him a lot. I think it was uh, was it Hoist Gracie or one of the Gracie family saying that if everyone learned jujitsu that you'd, you'd make a huge dent in bullying. And I agree completely. I mean, I think it's nothing more humbling than in being in an environment. You might win one fight and then they just call someone else over and then you just get murdered and you're like, oh, OK, so I can't be yeah. an asshole there. <laughs> yeah. I mean, you you see that in every dojo you go to. Right. You know, you get a you get a new a new blue belt that's like a little bit cocky and that'll last for a certain amount of time. And then somebody will notice it. And then, you know, one of those old Browns will come over and like, Hey, educate you, you know? So it's cool. It's, it's definitely a good sport. It's, uh, you know, it teaches you manners and it, te- it builds character, you know, builds character. When I think of suffering and a lot of people in your community, you know, played a, played a gamut of things, but wrestling seemed to be one of the ones that were like, yeah, that's where I really learned, you know, my toughness. What was yeah. it about that? Because even to this day, it still seems that wrestling is revered. If you're if you're a successful wrestling athlete in school, people know the hurt box that you've been in for a long time. So, kind of what was the, what was the elements of that training that served you so well in selection years later? I think, I mean, looking back on it, you know, I didn't really know it at the time. But when you're on the mat and, you know, it's just you, you're the only one. There's no team to blame it on. You know, there's uh, I mean, they consider wrestling a team sport like there's team points and all. But like when your match, you win or lose your match and uh, being the only one there to 
accept responsibility for that, whatever outcome occurs, then, then that's a, that's a big lesson. You know, there's no blaming anybody else because you failed to win, you know, um, you have to take loss as a lesson, you know, like, Oh, he, you know, that dude ankle picked me so easy. I got to figure out how to defeat that, you know, and, and, you know, it's on you, you have to figure it out. And then you have a team to work with you to help you, but it, it is on you to, uh, to figure it out. And I think that kind of transfers throughout the rest of life is like being dependent on yourself and uh, to be successful is, is really a lesson that sticks. I did Taekwondo to quite a high level. I won some national uh, championships and things, but I always remember coming back and I never, ever, when I did lose, I never was like, oh, those judges, they didn't know what they were talking about. It was always like, even if it was close, well, how did I not whitewash that person and what can I do to fix it? And it was immediately back to work. But when I contrast yeah. it with, I played field hockey, which is going to you know not as many men play that in the UK. And it's funny because you get to run around with a stick and no pads. It's actually quite, yeah, yeah. you know, quite a dangerous sport. But there was a lot of that blaming. Oh, you you fucked up that pass. You missed that, you yeah. know, whatever it was. And so it's very easy to, to lose ownership because of that. How did you contrast that that ownership element in wrestling to the team sport of soccer did it shift in any way mm, so I when, I, when real... I say soccer i mean football i correct myself so yeah yeah <laughs> the real football yeah. <laughs> I, I know what you mean i, I speak football <laughs> um i'm not sure if there's a there's a real realization there's just i think for me there's a recognition of the difference you know there's there is a team sport and at some level if there's a you know a team breakdown then there is someone responsible, you know, maybe, you know, if, if you lose a ball or miss a pass or shank one, you know, like, yeah, I did that. I've always been, I think, pretty good at accepting responsibility for my part in whatever happened. So, you know, that maybe is a byproduct of wrestling and like not having anybody else to blame it on, you know, like it's different if you're a team sport athlete and you come into the wrestling room and you're placed on the mat with one other person, it's just you. And you try to blame the coach. I mean, the coach isn't wrestling. You are, there's nowhere to go. And it's like, you just are discovered immediately, I guess, in your, in your BS. Whereas on a, on a, on a team sport, you know, you can kind of like shift the blame around and around and around, unless you have, you know, men of character or athletes of character that can accept responsibility and figure out how to, how to mitigate those those failures in the future. Now, you mentioned about your dad being a Vietnam vet. You mentioned he was a medic as well. With mm -hmm. this kind of veteran um, lens that you have now, having a full um, career under your belt, when you look back, were there any elements of his time in Vietnam that manifested now that we're discussing the mental health side so much more openly and we're able to understand some of the things that, you know, show in our ancestors? I've never like, I'm not a, I'm not a doctor, so I can't diagnose. I can say that, uh, both my grandpas and my dad were pretty gruff men. You know, my dad's still alive. He's still ornery and, uh, you know, but they, they genuinely care, you know, they love and, uh, you know, sometimes it's hard for them to, uh, to express that, you know, they've, you know, my dad, I think has learned, you know, obviously continues through life and uh my mom's texting me right now <laughs> um <laughs> she's listening uh, 
Yeah. Uh, you know, but I, I think probably, you know, knowing what we know now about, uh, about soldiering and the effect that it has on people, especially if you're employed, you know, to do your job for real. Um, it has a, a pretty large impact on your, on your, on your existence, you know, so that kind of manifests different for everybody, but it seems that, that men are a little bit more protective of themselves and their families and they have a harder time, you know, being open to their, to their problems. But, you know, I think he did a pretty good job. I mean, my brother and I are doing good. Family's good. My kids are all grown up and doing good, you know? So, so we were, we were able to navigate that. Beautiful. Well, speaking of that career path, were you always thinking of the army or was it something else prior? Nah, man, I was, I was full in like, uh, probably from the time I was about nine or 10 years old, I was, I was full in. My dad was also a ranger. He was in second ranger battalion back in the early eighties and, uh, kind of a standout of my youth. I remember distinctly the day that I saw the invasion of Grenada happening on TV. And that was my dad. And, you know, he got a phone call, you know, went to work that morning at zero dark 30 cussing as he rolled out the door about all these alerts and the hell are we doing and blah, blah, blah. This is bullshit. You know, I think it was a weekend. I can't remember exactly, but you know, and he went to work and then we didn't see him again for, you know, a few weeks. So, or was it a couple weeks, but uh, you know, like my mom and I found out that, on the news, you know, like they invaded Grenada, you know, and then, you know, I knew, you know, I, I kind of hung out in the aid station. My dad was a medic. He ran the aid station there at the battalion, uh, him. And, uh, you know, I knew a bunch of the other medics and, uh, you know, I would, I would usually ride my, I not usually, I periodically, I would ride my bike to, to the battalion area after school and hang out in the aid station, you know, and they, all the, the young medics would be having me stitch up dudes or give shots or whatever, you know, and I'm 10. So I'm in the Ranger aid station, you know, hanging out with these Rangers and doing this stuff. So I kind of knew then like, yeah, this is a pretty cool life. Of course, I didn't see all the, all the lead up to that life, <laughs> but, uh, but I was, I was digging it. And then when they went to Grenada, you know, they came home and it was, it was kind of the first military operation post Vietnam. And, um, uh, America, the United States had kind of understood at that point that they really did a disservice to the Vietnam vets who came home and uh, were shunned. So that was the first time that like any American troops had deployed, fought and then like coming back like as a unit. So that was kind of a big deal when they came back to Fort Lewis. I remember the award ceremony when all the guys got medals and stuff. And it was like, you know, my grandparents came up from Oregon to Washington to Fort Lewis to see it. And it was like, it was a big deal. And it, you know, it had a, had an impact. It was like, yeah, that's pretty rad. I think I'm going to probably want to do what they do, you know? Well, speaking of Vietnam vets, I had uh, Richard Rice on, who's one of the Delta operators at Mogadishu. He started his career in Vietnam, ended in Mogadishu. That's quite a story yeah. career. Like you said, in that period, um, mm -hmm. I had Tom Satterley, Matt Eversman, but also Mike Durant. The, the pilot that was captured. So I know that was kind of one of the, the first events for you as a ranger. So kind of walk me through that. Well, I was in Alpha Company. So I got there 
after like Bravo company was the actual company that was in Mogadishu with Delta force. And they had done the whole black Hawk down thing. That was Bravo company three, seven, five. I was an alpha company. So when that was all happening, they alerted my company and we, you know, went to work, palletized, loaded everything. And we got on a plane and we were headed to Africa, you know, during the firefight. So when we got there, it was kind of post guys had made it back from Olympic stadium and they were, you know, they were kind of the aftermath of the battle. And, uh, the intent when we first got there, what we thought was to continue mission, you know, we were going to Charlie Mike. And then because, uh, chief Durant was still, was still being held prisoner. That was kind of the focus was to, uh, was to find and retrieve chief Durant. And, uh, I think they, you know, I was so young back then, man, but as I look back on it, my number one priority was to not get in trouble. And then my number two priority is do my job well. And uh, so I kind of paid attention to things, but we were, I think they kind of knew that we knew where he was and we were about to, we were about to head out the gate and come after him and rescue him. And, uh, and they turned him back in. And as soon as chief Durant got, got repatriated, was back in our hands, you know, evacuated back to the States. Um, we closed down the task force and we left and, uh, you know, that was kind of a kick in the grill. You know, I, uh, all of those guys, like there was a mission there to be done for sure. So we thought, you know, there was a mission to be done. And then all of the sudden, I think just because of the bad press now it was not important anymore. So like, even at that time you wondered, like, I mean, was it important in the first place? You know, like, just because we got the bad press doesn't change the fact that this is happening and there's still something to be done here. But, you know, I was sure. I think I was in the army like just under a year at that time. So, but it was a, it was a good learning experience, you know, going there. Um, we did a lot of training with the Delta guys, you know, leading up to that. Um, we were, we were on a training exercise for something else when Bravo company deployed initially and uh i mean they were over there for a while before black hawk down happened and uh you know while that was happening my company went up to fort bragg and did a bunch of training with the squadron that we went over with and uh you know so that was really super awesome at that time um it wasn't the interoperability like i think that was the very beginning of it like uh you know ranger battalion and and delta you know they have a relationship for sure but that that level of of cooperation like on on missions and stuff i don't think was really experienced until mogadishu and then it's grown you know obviously since then but that was the very beginning of it and as a, a brand new ranger private seeing those like delta force guys man i was like those dudes are amazing you know so what made you yourself choose to go into selection for special forces well <laughs> My brother says I had blue balls, right? Uh, <laughs> Understandably. Uh, so my experience in the army, you know, this was, I went to selection in 1995 and uh, I went to the course right after and I graduated in 96, but I didn't Somalia, right? So I was an alpha company. So we went, we deployed, returned, didn't really get into any, any ticks over there. Didn't no gunfighting for our company. Um, then, uh, 
I think it was 94, like maybe late 94. I don't know if you remember this. Like we were spinning up to invade the island of Haiti, right? We were going to go to Haiti and uh, kind of very similar to what happened to Grenada and Panama, you know, like the range regiment, 82nd Airborne, we're all going to jump in and, you know, retake the island and all that stuff. And uh, that was happening. We were spinning up for it. And actually we were, I was on the airplane taxiing down the runway about to uh, take off. And the plan was to jump into Haiti and take the island. Right. So we're on the airplane taxiing down the runway and I think we're still taxiing the plane parks and uh, you can hear the engines shut off. And it was like, what the heck, what's going on? You know, jump masters stand up on the, on the back of the seats and tell everybody to grab their shit and get off the plane. And it was like the, probably the largest eruption of profanity I've ever heard in my life <laughs> uh, right at that moment. And uh, so we got off the plane, start to de-kit and like, oh man, it was such a shit show trying to turn in ammo and stuff. Cause everybody had broken down their ammo. Like you get it in boxes, right. But then when you get it, you take it out of the box and like kind of configure it to weigh how you're going to carry it and use it like, you know, for work. So everything's out of the box. We got to turn it in, count stuff. And it's just a shit show. And, uh, there were, there were other guys like loading, literally loading the aircrafts, the aircraft that we had just gotten off. And it was like, you know, what's the story? Like, what are those dudes doing? Who are they? You know, they're like, Oh, those are third group. Like where the, where the hell are they going? Haiti. I'm like, what? Like, how did that work out? Like, that seems dumb. So that took note there. And, uh, you know, just kind of felt like I had been in Ranger Battalion for almost four years at that point. And it was like, yeah, I'm like seeing the same cycle of training events and bilats. And we almost go to combat, but we don't. And these SF dudes are doing stuff all over the world. And, you know, nobody really knows. And it's kind of cool. There was, this was just kind of post the, uh, the uh, all the stuff going down Central America, you know, with Seventh Group, and uh, that wasn't really widely reported back then. People know about it now, but in the military, you knew, and uh, you know, so it's like I want to go somewhere where we're actually doing something. And honestly, I didn't even after being kind of in Mogadishu. Maybe it was just because I was too young. I didn't even really realize that kind of Delta Force was an option yet. Um, maybe I was just too young, or I thought I was too young. You know, I was a buck sergeant and. You know, it's just not there yet. So um, I had known a couple of guys that went to Delta Selection and, you know, they had basically been told, you know, go to SF and uh, and get some, you know, grow some hair and figure out who you are and then come and see us again. So I decided to go to SF Selection. And uh, honestly, I was pretty, I don't say scared, but I was concerned. I mean, I was concerned about doing well, you know. Um. I had been raised up in the Ranger Battalion and, uh, you know, we considered ourselves the best of anyone, you know, and even within the regiment, you know, third bat's better than the other two. And if you ask anybody from second, they'll tell you the same thing. But, you know, there was still a level of you have to perform at selection because back then it was it was it was a month long and it was uh, I think it was an individual event for three weeks. And then at the last the final week, there was a team week or they put you in together with a team and you had to do team events, but there was no, there was really no Intel, man. There was no, I didn't know what was going on. I had spoken to the SF recruiter like, Hey man, what do I need to do? And he's like, just walk with your rucksack, dude. That's it. He's like, just put your ruck on, make sure it weighs 50 pounds and don't take it off ever. 
And I was like, okay. So I just wore my ruck for, you know, ever until I went up there. And then, you know, that was good advice because nobody talked to you. We had to take instructions from a chalkboard. You know, that'll date me again. There was chalk on the chalkboard. <laughs> you know? um, and they just told you, you know, the instructions will be on the chalkboard. So you had a big, like the, the sh shack, big shacks where dudes would stay. You know, we had a bunch of cots in there and beds and, you know, we'd had just amongst ourselves had a rotation where, Hey man, you check, somebody's got to check the board every five minutes to make sure that we get the instructions because sometimes the instructions were have all your stuff on the formation area in five minutes. So somebody would have to tell us, you know, so we had to deal with that. And, you know, it was a little bit different, like than I think maybe it is now where, there's some guidance because I even remember asking questions to cadre, you know, and his response was, you are being assessed. That was it. You know, I'm like, Hey man, where do I need to go for this? You're being assessed. Uh, Roger that. So you figure it out yourself, you know? And uh, then we go into team week, you know, it gets, you know, you're assembled with a team and then you're presented with dilemmas and they want to see the team dynamic and how you perform in a team. And I think they, they probably build the team's, very purposefully as a result of what happens during the individual phases so they can uh, create dilemmas and uh it was a good experience but uh you you walk a lot with a rucksack on and uh it was pretty brutal honestly like we walked far carried heavy stuff and uh i made it through selection went back to my unit i was back to 375 i was the squad leader at the time and uh finished out my last six months or so and uh then i went to fort bragg and went to the q course well you talked about haiti that topic seems to have come up again recently and i i ironically i i've worked with with several haitian people that were you know originally from there came over very very recently i served communities in orlando that were predominantly haitian as well and then i went and visited on a cruise ship they, they literally kind of fenced off a tiny little corner um called labadee and uh, the, it's funny because the cruise ship comedian was talking about fake Haiti or Jurassic Parks. It's literally what it is. These, you know, like 20 foot electrified fences around it. But that is one of the most beautiful places on planet Earth I've ever been to. It is such a gorgeous place. And I think if they were able to get it to where it was safe again, that country would gain immensely from the tourism. Just that alone would probably reboot their economy. You almost went there, deployed in uniform. Have you got any perspective on maybe how we're able to turn that country around now? I think initially it's going to take some authoritarian like rule. Like it's going to have to be somebody that's in charge enough to establish, you know, security. Number one, you're not going to get anybody to invest in a country unless it's safe, you know, and as long as it's not safe, there's going to be no investment there. And uh, if there is no economy, like, crime is going to continue. So initially I think it's going to take probably a foreign power to come in and take over the place, you know, don't know who that'll be. Um, I don't think it's going to happen on its own. Obviously, you know, it's been how many years now, when was the Haitian slave revolt, you know, 1860s or something like that. Seventies, you know, that was the, you know, the slave revolt in Haiti where they took over, they overthrew the, the, the local monarchy and took over the place and it's kind of, you know, been chaos ever since then, really. Um, they've never had a really established, well-running, not corrupt government, 
you know, since then. So it'll take somebody to uh, establish control before they can, I guess, uh, have some reforms to get more freedom for the people. But initially it's going to take, probably going to take an iron fist over there, in my opinion. Could be wrong. Yeah, well, it's interesting because you've got a you know unique perspective. But I know the the Asian the excuse me the Haitian friends or the Asian friends, um, they talked about you know was it Papa Doc and then Baby Doc and again going back to what your comment earlier is it's a few men that ruin it for everyone else and it seemed like hey he was a prime example of that. Yeah, yeah. It generally, is in every conflict you can look at them almost all the same. You know, all the revolutions and. All that stuff comes back to one guy who is a good speaker and he can rally the troops and get people on his side to oppose them. And, you know, big promises, big promises of prosperity. You know, if you just if you just murder all these people, it's going to be better for everyone, you know, and then, oh, wow, it's not that guy just wanted to be the king. Weird, you know, and it keeps happening again and again and again and again and again, you know. I've talked about this a lot. One of my guests, I wish I could remember who it was so I could give him credit, but someone made a comment a few months ago now and they said, imagine you're in medieval England and you've told the, you divided the peasants and told them to, you know, opposing things that they start fighting with each other. He's like, they're fighting with each other. Who are they not looking at? Like you, you in the castle. And I'm like, that is the most perfect analogy of what's been going on for a decade plus in this country as well. Like we're so busy fighting with each other. It's, pro or anti-vaccine or pro or anti-police or Republican or Democrat or this or that, that we're forgetting to turn around and go, wait a second, don't these people work for us? Have we totally forgotten what a democracy is actually supposed to be about? Indeed. Yeah, it's been happening forever. It was before, I mean, from medieval times all the way through. I think in America, we kind of got, you know, when you talk about monarchies and stuff, like we, we just changed the hats, I guess. But uh, we had so much vast wilderness that people really didn't notice how they were being exploited or they were just so far removed from civilization, you know, that, uh, that they didn't really care to inter interact with it. You know, like, uh, um, they talk about, there is talk about, you know, civilized people, right. The civilized people usually live in, you know, civilization, right. Hence the, hence the, the term. Right. But, uh, there's been uh, the common thought amongst civilized people is because is that uncivilized people are just not smart enough or they haven't been exposed to modernism, right? They haven't been exposed to, man, this city's so awesome. If you just sent your kid to our school and everything would be cool and you'd be, it'd be great, you know? Well, maybe that uncivilized person has decided that they don't want any part of that. They just want to live on the side of a mountain away from you. And they don't want a part of civilization, you know, They're like, but the civilized can't accept that. They can't accept that. There's no way that anybody would not want to be a part of this. And they just try to force that upon quote unquote uncivilized people. And that's happened on every continent, you know, around the world for a millennia, you know, the civilized try to, uh, you know, pacify the natives and, they assume it's because, you know, they, there's, there's no way they don't want to be a part of what we have going on. It's, it's great, you know. You're telling me the Pashtun elders wouldn't love pumpkin spice lattes? 
I mean, they might. Have you had a try <laughs> over there, bro? Those things are so like there's that's got to be three quarters sugar. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Well, speaking of the world, um, I've had you know, numerous Green Beret guests on the show now. Um, I have an understanding. Obviously, there's a geographical component to each group. So, where yeah. on the globe did you find yourself deployed? And let's talk about that area. Well, initially, when I was in the special, when I was in the Q course, my initial. Here's a funny story here leading into this. Uh, initially, I was assigned to fifth group, which their theater of operations is the Middle East. And at the time, this is the mid 90s, right? 96. I was like, man, I am not feeling that. Like, we we don't want to, like, we had just fought, like, uh, the Desert War One like, not long ago. And it was like, that's there's nothing happening there anymore. And that place sucks. <laughs> like, just don't want to go there, right? So how do I get out of this? And uh, I went through, you know, the proper channels and they, of course, told me pound sand, like, nope, you're assigned here where you need. And uh, we were at the regimental supper, which is uh, it's kind of a military formality. It's a kind of a ceremonial thing where the the chain of command of your of the of your new units, right? All the special forces groups have a big dinner with all the new guys. And it's just closed. It's all military guys, and that's it. So, um, being that I was kind of from the West Coast, had a lot of family here and stuff, I uh, I went up to Sergeant Major Efert, who was the first group sergeant major at the time, and I said, "Hey, man, uh, I'm assigned to fifth group, but I would really like to go to Fort Lewis or to Okinawa and be in first group." And he's like, "Well, here's what you do." He's like, "There's no way they're going to change groups now. You've already been done. But here's what you do." When they call your name to go to French or Arabic or whatever language it is for fifth group, you just walk down the hall and you go into Thai class. And he said, by the time they figure it out, it'll be way too late for them to change it. And you'll get reassigned to first group. And that's what I did, man. This is pre-computer era, all that stuff. So I just took his advice. I changed the flash of my beret and uh, I walked into Thai class. And four months later, they were like, Denman, you're supposed to be going up to Fort Campbell, man. What's wrong with you? I'm like, dude, I'm in Thai class. What are you talking about? And they were like, what? You're supposed to be in French class. And I'm like, bro, I've been sitting in Thai class for four months. And they're like, whoa. Like, this is like, uh, the, you know, the little clerk, like, whoa. And, uh, yeah, they changed my stuff, man. I went to Fort Lewis and uh, got the first group. So that was pretty cool. Like, things you could do before computers, right? Um Went to first group, like I spent four months in language school at Fort Bragg, or was it six, four, six. And uh, during that time, you do a bunch of cultural, like, you know, training. And we would go to Thai temples. And uh, my teacher was really cool, Kunkru Chana. She was awesome. Um, her husband was a Thai teacher also. Um, they were Thai nationals that had come to the States. And uh, they worked there at the at the bank hall teaching, teaching uh, Green Berets how to speak Thai. And uh, it was good. I was lucky when I got to my unit. I went up to Fort Lewis and probably within six weeks I was in Thailand. So got to the got to Fort Lewis, got to my team. Team's going to Thailand and off we went. So I got right after language school. I was in Thailand for six weeks and that kind of solidified things pretty well. And then I came home. I think I was only home for maybe two weeks and went right back to Thailand again with another team. And I uh, was in Thailand for another six weeks. So kind of like going to language school immediately followed by, you know, 
basically two deployments straight to Thailand was really, really good for kind of re retaining all that information. And uh, yeah, I was in Fort Lewis for three years, did several trips to several places in Southeast Asia, Laos, um, Thailand, Korea, a couple of times. Um, uh, we were supposed to go to Indonesia, but it got kanked. And then I went over to Okinawa, uh, PCS, changed, moved my family over to Oki. Um, and uh, was in Okinawa for just under five years and deployed a bunch of times there, a bunch of times in Thailand, uh, several times in Korea. We'd go to Korea pretty regularly just to shoot, use their ranges and stuff. Um, um, yeah, Thailand a bunch. Went to the Philippines a few times. Um, actually, my first two OEF deployments were to the Philippines. This is 2002, 2003. And I uh, went to the Philippines for those first couple of trips. And then I got, we call it SWICT, right? We got the SWICT bomb. I got levied to SWICT to be an instructor at the Q course. So from my left there in 03. So 2003 to 2006, I was in the Q course as an instructor. And then I changed groups and went to third group. And uh, that was kind of an ordeal, but I got, by this time I had been in group for 11 years and knew enough dudes that I called Sergeant Majors to help me out and they hooked me up and I just had to promise Sergeant Major Sherlock that I'd never try to go back to first group. I don't know why. I'm like, you're only going to be the Sergeant Major for two years, bro. I'll go back when you're gone. <laughs> <laughs> well, speaking of epic blue balls, you go to first group and then in 2001, which is nine years into your career, 9-11 happens so kind of walk me through because it's always intriguing as well you know what was the mindset as far as training prior and then what was the shift in um just the entire training ethos after that event well like you said i was uh i was in first group um and at the time we were actually i was in my house i lived on an air force base over there kadena and uh we were under a lockdown because there was a typhoon mm -hmm going over the island. So we were all in our, in our houses locked up and, uh, you know, batting down the hatches, kind of waiting for the storm to go through. And my team sergeant called me. He's like, Hey man, turn the TV on right now. You know, typical story. I'm like, what's up? Boom. And we're on the phone and, uh, you know, we see the events unfolding on, on the news. And I was like, dude, everybody knew like immediately, like, yo, this is a big, like things are going to change tomorrow. You know, so so um, that was kind of a mental flip flip of the switch, I think, for everybody right then, you know, and, uh, you know, immediately go back to the box, like the boxes where we used to be worked at. We just called the building the box because there was no windows um, and, uh, you know, get to your team room, start to get a intel dumps from, you know, from the captain to warrant like, hey, what's going on? Like, where are we going to go? Like, what's what's happening? Um I remember we had a formation and uh, it's, it's funny because like you said, uh, all the special forces groups are regionally oriented. So literally they had remapped kind of the whole AO, the world in the AOs of each region very recently before that. I mean, I think it was within a year or two. And uh, prior to that, uh, Mongolia, Afghanistan, Pakistan, all these part, these stands were all, first group AO. So I think kind of a lot of us still had that in our head, like, yo, we're definitely like 
on the way over there to do something, you know, I mean, we had guys going to do deployments in Mongolia, you know, just training deployments. And, uh, well, they had re reshuffled the map and now all the stands had fallen under fifth group. So there was a lot of dudes that were like, yo, like that's bullshit. We've been studying Afghanistan. Like, you know, that's our AO, but it, that didn't really matter at the time. Cause they had reshuffled it. And, uh, and the fifth group guys ended up going, but, um, it must've, it must've been a lot of dudes. I'm not sure. But, uh, I remember we had a company or a battalion formation and the Sergeant Major said like to everybody, stop putting in assignment requests for fifth group. None of you guys is going anywhere. Like it's not happening. So just stop doing it, you know? And then of course, as things kind of, kind of calmed down initially and we're, you know, reading and gathering, gathering information and all that stuff, um, kind of mapping out the world and what our responsibilities might be. Our battalion commander at the time, uh, Dave Maxwell, was super, super smart, switched on dude in Asia. And he had already kind of mapped out a lot of the a lot of the Islamic threats that were present in uh, in Asia. So we kind of refocused our attention on those things and uh, and got to work in our in our own AO and our initial deployment which this is kind of a testament to that uh, that thing that if you have it, you need to justify its use, right? The initial plan was for our AOB, which is our higher headquarters, to remain in Okinawa. And uh, they were just going to deploy teams into Mindanao, into the southern Philippines, and all those island chains down there where there were, at the time, the Abisayaf group was a, you know, Islamic militant group that was running amok down there. And we were going to assist the Philippine... Marine Corps, Philippine Army, and dealing with the Abbasayaf down there, because obviously our intelligence collecting apparatuses were far superior and stuff. So we we're going to do that. And then as that plan got kicked up the chain, the initial team level deployment turned into a giant siege of deployment, which is a huge organization, all infilling into into the southern Philippines and, and uh, having an AOB in Zamboanga and teams deployed in various other spots around the islands. And uh, it just grew exponentially because, you know, all those higher level commands, they wanted their piece of the pie, you know? And if you were a, if you were a full bird colonel in Hawaii at sock pack, then you were not boots on the ground in the Philippines. So that changed immediately to, we need a colonel level command in the Philippines. So, you know, that was the initial, that was another, not the initial, another, oh, look how it just grew. Like this was a great plan presented by Colonel Maxwell for team level deployment with an AOB in Okinawa. And it just got basically taken over by higher command and exploded into this giant, giant footprint. And, uh, you know, anyway, did a couple of those couple of those deployments in the Philippines. Um, They're pretty awesome. Had a really cool time. My team, I was a dive team. We ended up uh, working with uh, the fifth Marine beach landing team from the Philippine Marine Corps. And uh, we had like their special operations platoon with my team. And uh, we had a fire base out close to uh, Maluso. And uh, we were there for a few months and, uh, didn't really do any, didn't do any fighting per se, but uh, kind of built up an infrastructure there. A lot of people started moving back once we had a footprint there and we had a fire base and there were military guys kind of maintaining security. A lot of civilians started moving back to the area. 
Um, my team actually built a little schoolhouse outside of our fire base to uh, bring kids in and teach them stuff. Um, yeah, our, our uh, I think uh, Matt Dewey, who was my team uh, combo guy, he was actually, I think, on the news because he was teaching an English class to all these little Filipino kids in a little Gilligan's Island, like bamboo hut, which was pretty cool. You know, we had a, it was it was rad, you know. Once we got past the initial, I guess, disappointment for not being in the Middle East or in Afghanistan and like focusing on our AO and what we were doing, it was good. But there's still some, yeah, we we need to be going over there and getting on the, getting in the fight, you know. Well, speaking of the Philippines, my wife is half Filipino herself. Um and you know, I've got a real love for Southeast Asia. Um, I was actually on my way to there and I got a job in Japan, so I never made it all the way to the islands, but I've done martial arts. I love you know, the Thai culture, Thai boxing, et cetera. Yeah. But it's, it's not an area that really gets a lot of uh, attention when it comes to what is happening with the terrorism in those countries, same as Indonesia. I remember some of the bombings and a lot of Australian tourists right. were killed. So, you know, what... What are the Filipino people suffering from down there? Because the lens is rarely pointed their direction. Um, I haven't really looked at it in a long time, but at the time, um, you know, Islamic militants, right? In my opinion, these guys were just pirates. They didn't have really, they didn't care about, you know, Islamic fundamentalism as much as they did with robbing and kidnapping for ransom and things like that. And I think they just used, you know, the, the Islamic terrorist, you know, image as an excuse to conduct their ops, you know, um, they're just a bunch of criminals as far as I'm concerned, really. Um, but at the time, pretty large organization. If you look at the map in uh, the Southern Philippines kind of gets all the way down there by Indonesia and Malaysia, there's a thousand little islands down there, you know, and these guys were kidnapping for ransom was their big thing. You know, they'd come in on boats to a beach resort or whatever and, you know, tear it down, kidnap some people and then hold them for ransom. And then the ransom would be paid and they'd make their money and then they'd go to the next spot. And it kept happening over and over and over. And uh, there was a missionary couple, the Burnhams, Martin and Gracia Burnham, who were kidnapped and uh, being held for ransom. And, and uh, that was kind of, I guess, one of the key, the key elements of getting American boots on the ground down there is these American hostages. Cause they had been held hostage for, I think a couple of years by the time we even got there. And uh, so we got there and then that was kind of the, the initial, the initial mission was to try to track down, find and rescue the Burnhams and uh, any other hostages that might be there. Right. So, we started doing that. Um, you know, we were patrolling all over the islands, old school, like, you know, Vietnam lookalikes running around in the jungle down in the Southern Philippines. And uh, um, the Philippine military had also dealt with Abu Sayyaf down there because um, they were trying to maintain the peace, you know, and these guys were were messing with it. And they, they spouted off that they were, you know, Muslims and then Philippines is a pretty Catholic um, country, you know, so there was like that, that dynamic of, of Christianity and, and uh, Islam. And, you know, I think that got blown out of proportion myself. I think it was more of the state against the criminal, but, you know, again, men use those terms because it, it, it inspires people 
and whoops him up, you know. So that happened, um, you know, and the fighting was going on. Uh, we kind of got the word. It wasn't initially, but we didn't really understand, I think. At least I didn't understand until I had been boots on the ground for a couple of weeks, really, that we weren't going to fight there. Like, it was literally part of, like, a, the Filipino constitution that we were not going to, like, foreign foreign militaries are not going to come into the Philippines and, and fight anybody. Like we could, we could be alongside the, the Philippines, the Filipinos, and, you know, they were going to conduct ops, which we did several times. They were doing, you know, real stuff. And we were basically right back there behind them with the commander on the radio, like advising them, but we didn't get into the mix ourselves. Um, later on, after I had left, we did have some, uh, I guess there were some some gunfights down in Holo Holo Island, and uh, I know at least I know one guy who was killed there, um, and uh, you know, but the the fighting like you would see maybe in Iraq and Afghanistan didn't really occur in the Philippines. It was more of a advisory advisory role with the Filipino military. Yeah, I think. Also, there's a little bit of the America shies away from uh, conflict in Asia, I think, based on Vietnam. I think a little bit of the, you know, like the stigma of Vietnam still looms. So the idea of going over somewhere in Asia to fight again was very like the America was not having that. So we we're very timid about about getting involved further in that area. I don't know that to be true. It's just an assumption, but I think so. I think it has something to do with it. Well, you mentioned about being assigned to SWIC and, and doing the training for several years. Talk to me about how that ultimately took you to Iraq. Mm. Well, I went, uh, I left Okinawa and uh, went to Fort Bragg and I taught what's called phase two of the qualification, the special forces qualification course, the SFQC. I taught the second phase of that, which is the, basically the first trade, the first phase of training. Phase one is selection. Phase two is the, we call it the field phase back then. I don't know what they call it now, which is basically where you learn patrolling, um, field crafts, um, small unit tactics, mainly like junk, like, I don't know how to how to put it down. It's just patrolling, right? Um, is the is the big crux of it, and how to work in small units, like in the, in the in the field. You know, um, it's a pretty high attrition part of the course for a couple of reasons, I believe. I think number one, the weather has a lot to do with it. Uh, you're living out in the bush the whole time, and uh, if it's cold, dudes quit, man. Like people do not like to be cold, and uh, you know it's in Central North Carolina which, you know, it's a pretty moderate climate, but in the wintertime, I mean, my first winter out there, uh, I mean, we had snow up to our bottom of our knees, you know, it was snow out there. So dudes were hating life, you know? And, uh, when you're living in that, it causes people to tap out, um, on the flip side, you know, in summers in North Carolina get pretty hot, dude. And the humidity is high, you know, the climate's a lot like where you're at now and dudes, same thing, guys. I mean, they, freaking have heat casualties and they they tap out you know so the weather has a lot to do with the attrition rate the second thing is it's the first the first phase of training so i think it's the first time people are really exposed to 
having to do things that they've never done before and they're held accountable for, you know, like once kind of you make it past the selection phase, we have determined we've determined that you have what it takes. And now you have to prove to us that that's the case. So kind of my opening speech when I was a, when I was a walker out there was, you know, from this point forward, you're a green beret, you're going to be one. The only thing that's going to cause you to not be one is your, your own actions. So just consider yourself a green beret right now. So when somebody asks you for help, you need to know how to help them. Somebody asks you for assistance. You need to know how to assist. It's no longer a point where you can look behind you and see who else is going to be here to help because you're the guy they're looking for, you know? So you have to have that mindset. And uh, a lot of people don't, and you don't discover it until they're put on the spot, you know? So that initial phase of training filters out a lot of dudes too. So we had a lot of scrutiny on us from the command as far as attrition, because uh, this is the same year that we invaded Iraq and the United States did. And uh, the, the, the amount of guys that were being killed in action was growing. And um, there was direction from Washington, D.C. that they needed more Green Berets as fast as you could spit them out. And uh, which is very contrary to the way we had done business in the past. You know, we kind of one of our, one of our, uh, the soft truths, you know, you can't mass produce special operators. You just can't do it. You know, you can't create these guys in a moment of crisis. It's just not how it's done. So we were under a lot of pressure at the course to, uh, to make green berets and that caused a lot of stress out there. And, uh, I spent a lot of time on the phone once I, I was a walker for four classes, five classes, and then I became the kind of the boss of the, the committee. And uh, I spent a lot of time on the phone with the colonel talking about numbers. And, uh, you know, it was stressful. I want but, to jump uh, in just for one second and, and tangent off that. We have a hiring crisis in the U.S. at the moment um, for police and fire. And from the the journey that I had in the fire service, I worked for arguably one of the best departments in the country where the standard was extremely high and it was just simple that you either made it or you didn't. And their attrition rate, which for a fire department is incredibly high, was 25% within the first year would, would be lost. And they were super polite and like, look, there's lots of other departments that you would be welcome with open arms. We're just not the right one for you. And then conversely, I had one of probably one of the worst fire departments is my last one, um, where the bar was in a ditch in the ground and they struggled to find anyone. And the, the reason was people wanted to be challenged. The, the right people would show up in droves and shoot for that target. But when, it, when I look at the other one, the quality, not only at the entry level um, rank, but all the way then through the other ranks was so detrimental to the overall mission with this unique perspective that you had this is the standards that we want and now you're being forced to shift it what was your observation of the result initially there was a lot of resistance and we were successful but eventually there were people that made it that probably should not have and they would not have a year prior and that took a it took a toll on the force right they became less effective you know because you're still going to have to deal with those guys 
it's just not going to be at the school level. Like they're going to have to, their team sergeant's going to have to deal with them or their company sergeant major. Somebody's going to eventually find out that they, that they don't cut the mustard, you know, and it's just kind of was taken out of the hands of the, of the instructors and the committees. Um, and, and they just kind of kicked the can, you know, in an effort to appease higher, like, you know, DC basically, um, you know, they compromise themselves and we compromise ourselves, you know, um, there were several instructors who, who tried to fight it. And, you know, they just, they, there's no way that as an NCO, you're going to beat, you know, a flag officer level request. It's not going to happen. So, you know, we did the best we could. I mean, I know I did the best we could. We had, uh, there was a point in time where they actually told us like, Hey, we know that the general, the general production of the SFQ course, like today is, you know, 300 green berets a year graduate. And we want it to be 750. And that was like, that's more than double. That's literally impossible. And they were like, okay, well, we expect that to happen next month. So everybody who was had any tenure there, I, I wouldn't even consider myself tenured. I had been there for maybe a year. Um, kind of had a, a big group meeting, sit down, like how can we restructure the course to, to, to be able to fit all the, the new students one. And like, we didn't have enough barracks, man. Like we didn't have enough beds. We didn't have enough guns. Like there's so much support that goes along with growing the course that, that we, you know, we had to have like a no kidding sit down from top to bottom and kind of restructure the whole pipeline and figure out how to get it done. And uh, for me, I was at phase two. So we restructured our phase into kind of little blocks and we broke the cadre down into like two week, two week blocks so that we could handle kind of the same amount of students, but less of them at a time, but still accomplish the same tasks within our 35 day training window. And, uh, you know, I think it was pretty successful. You know, we did, we did really well with what we had. Um, I had to order a lot of tents and guys were no longer sleeping in the barracks. They were sleeping in tents because there were not enough barracks. And, uh, you know, we did it. I think it was fairly successful. Um, you know, there's definitely, definitely been, you know, a lot of analysis of it after the fact. And, uh, you know, a lot of the things that we said leading into it have proven themselves to be accurate now that we can look back on it. But at the, at the moment, you know, when the, when the Pentagon's telling you we need more, we need more, you can you can just talk until you're blue in the face and it's not going to matter. Well, with the hiring crisis, one of my observations, having been a you know a bit of a gypsy in the fire service and then getting to speak to literally hundreds of people on the show, is there seems to be a pretty resounding truth that if you lower the bar, that doesn't actually increase the number of people you hire, it actually decreases it. And the ones that you get are less likely to be good candidates. Well, the ones that you want will not, will not even show up. You know, the ones that you want will not even show up. Um, in... In the U.S. Army, there's only two units that I'm aware of. I could be wrong, but I'm, there's only two units that I'm aware of that have what's called summary release. And that means if you do something that's contrary to their standard, you're out. That's the 75th Ranger Regiment and Delta Force. That's the only ones I'm aware of. And somebody can correct me if I'm wrong. But I think that that has a lot to do with the, the caliber of people that go there. You know, like if you don't cut the mustard, they just tell you, hey, Travis, you didn't get a haircut. Pack your shit. 
you know, you're done. Like, well, what do you mean? What do you mean? Uh, you have to have a haircut every Monday. And if you don't have it, you're not a ranger. So pack your shit and get out. You know, that's just, that's all it takes is you have summary release authority. So if the command deems that you're not worthy, you're out. And that has, that has a lot to do with the level of the level of awesome of the applicants, not to mention the people that actually make it, but the applicants, because people who are of high caliber see that and they see that only the best, only the best people are there. And that's where I want to be. So they apply. And if you see guys kind of squeaking through the cracks, those people that are the best are like, nah, that's not for me. I want to be at the best, you know? So it, it makes a big difference, not only in the output, but in the applicants, I think. Well, your career took you to Asia. Walk me through having taught in, you know, a, an instructor setting and preparing um, soldiers for combat in the Middle East when you actually got to deploy there yourself and see the tactics with your own eyes. Well, when I was probably when I was still an instructor, we hadn't really learned a hell of a lot yet from the war going on you know i got there in 2003 you know so this is one year after the initial invasion in afghanistan and all that stuff so things kind of hadn't made full circle back to us yet so we were basically still teaching you know probably vietnam era tactics and things you know um and then when my when i finally got to iraq myself like the war had evolved so much and it had become such a, I guess, a routine that that a lot of things that we were teaching, I think, were being lost, especially to me in a special forces role. You know, like our when I was in the course and when I was raised up, they called unconventional warfare was our bread and butter. That's what special forces A teams did. That's why we were structured the way we were, because you could take one A team and they could basically build an entire brigade level task force and utilize that with locals and stuff and uh you know so we spent a lot of time you know doing cultural awareness doing language training like being you know deployed in theater with our you know counterparts and like learning kind of their side of things and uh you know i think i think when i went to iraq was only the second time in my career that i actually had an interpreter like with us you know and uh like all those times that we had deployed to thailand or you know the philippines or whatever we had guys on our team that could speak tagalog you know we didn't need you know we had i speak thai so we'd teach classes in thai and i would usually bumble through it you know because i speak thai like you know a seventh grader but i could get the point across you know and i could learn it and usually between whatever guys were teaching they could speak enough english i could speak enough thai and it would get done you know but it just became what I, what appeared to me to be so routine. Like we infilled, you know, we had our fire base and that's where guys rotated in and out of. And, you know, it's like an Airbnb and you know, there's, there's the gym, here's this and that, like, cool. What's your op tempo? Like, Oh, we do this and that, which, you know, we did, but it was, it wasn't the same type of existence that we had trained for at least when I went to the Q course, you know, and we were training for an entirely different mission set than what was being utilized in theater. So there was a lot of uh, institutional learning that needed to take place at the unit level so that they could maintain that stuff, you know, and uh, I was in Bravo 23. It's a company in uh, third group that was, it was a SIF company. So we did the same rotation 
back to back to back, like year in and year out, we just did the same rotation. And I mean, I stayed in almost in the same room, like year after year going back there, you know, I have the same bros that are in the ICTF that are my bros still today. You know, I was with them for, you know, five rotations. So I know, them. you know, and uh, for a period we were doing, we would do one rotation where we were training with uh, locals and then are working with locals. And then we would do one rotation where it was just uh, unilateral American only ops. And then we would go back and forth, you know? Um, but that whole mission set, you know, was a little bit different for me and the guys going to Afghanistan probably would have a different opinion of that. But, but for me, the main portion of my experience would be going to Iraq and uh, you know, that's what we, we did over there. So it was not like we, not like we learned in the Q course at all. So what's your philosophy now? Cause I've, again, the, the bad fire department I work for, we had a massive near miss with the pulse shooting. His shooter came to our area, which was Disney Springs, the big shopping area mm. was yeah. seen to get out with his weapons in a stroller. Too many cops at that particular moment gets back in his car, drives to pulse shoots, at, you know, murders tens and tens and tens of people. I get back, I'm actually overseas at the time, waiting for this huge, you know, okay, we've got to change X, Y, and Z, and it was nothing. Conversely, the good fire department, Anaheim, California, Disneyland, but they protect it, they're a separate city, they don't work for Disney, extremely well prepared. So one, mm -hmm. I would not let my family anywhere near, the other one, I wouldn't want any better, there's no better people, in my opinion, than the men and women in uniform in Anaheim to protect if they mm -hmm. went to Disneyland. And the difference really was the 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 East Coast one was, well, it hasn't happened, so we're fine. The West Coast philosophy was, let's try and think of anything that possibly could happen and, and let's prepare for it, let's train for it, let's equip for it. So with that kind of you know idea, you, you start discovering, you know, the army, the special forces, that the tactics aren't, you know, that you are kind of hanging on to the Vietnam era. What was the the mindset change to start thinking about? projecting different types of training once dudes actually started rotating back to the schoolhouse who had combat experience those kind of lessons learned from from theater started to make their way back into the course and when you're looking at special forces training there's kind of there's several levels of it right so there's the initial training which is the q course that's the qualification course this is your basic level green beret books we need you to be able to do these things in order to operate as a part of an a team right so those things they stayed roughly the same generally so like i would say fundamentally the fundamentals stayed there kind of some of the scenarios that we presented during the q course kind of were tailored more towards the current events but the fundamentals remain the same when you get to the specialty skills all right. Once you are assigned to your unit and, uh, you know, let's say you go back for free fall school or you go to scuba school or you go to sniper school or any of these myriads of other what we call special skills schools, um, those schools adapted. They're able to adapt a little bit more quickly because they don't they're not teaching the fundamentals, <laughs> the fundamentals anymore. <laughs> it was a dog walking by, I guess. They're not teaching the, the fundamentals anymore. They're teaching, you know, a specific skill set that is needed, you know, so they were able to adapt a lot quicker. Like when you talk about the, the free fall school, 
I went to free fall school in, in 2002. And, uh, you know, it was the same probably free fall school that was going on in 1986. You know, we were jumping out of planes, jump a ruck, like jump oxygen, you know, that's it, you know. But then as the war kicked off, the school evolved, you know, more units were doing actual free fall infiltration into combat. You know, they identified a lot of things, shortcomings, and they basically they built a new school. Um, I think it was called ATIC, the tactical infiltration course, the advanced tactical infiltration. But basically they were teaching the skill set of actually doing a full-blown infiltration, standoff, high altitude, high opening, navigation jump where, you know, you're keeping your team together. So those things happened in the scheme of the government bureaucracy very quickly, but probably in a civilian company, it would be considered slow. But in when you're trying to change programs of instruction that are funded and established by, you know, a lot of paperwork and high up admin people and stuff, it's very difficult to change things. So the special skill schools were fairly, fairly quick to change, um, especially like at Sniper School and uh, Safartec, which is kind of like our hostage rescue school, is our hostage rescue school. Um, a lot of the support assets didn't really need to be changed. They just needed to tweak actual TTPs that were being taught for the school. And that was faster because they didn't need to change the ammo allocation or the location or the timeline or anything like that. So those things changed pretty quick. But the Q course, fundamentals the same, but basically no, no gross changes. You know, we're still looking for that basic level, basic level Green Beret to go to a team. Well, I know you ended up teaching the hostage rescue side. Um, talk to me about your philosophy on this crisis we have in our schools as far as the, the shootings there. There's a gamut of, you know, responses and there's a gamut, obviously, of cities that are very well prepared or as we discussed before we hit record, sadly, you know, some tragic examples, Parkland, Duvaldi, where, you know, initially, I mean, even though the response after in, in Parkland was phenomenal, the initial school resource officer did not perform the way they were supposed to. So what is your philosophy with such a storied background on what we're suffering from in America at the moment? The number one thing that I think that America suffers from is the breakdown of the family. You know, that's the number one problem that we have that contributes to all these other problems. That's the breakdown of the family, right? And it's a, it's, it's a root cause of so many of these subsequent is issues, right? Um, anybody who would walk into anywhere, let alone a school, and kill anyone in cold blood. Something's something's going on up there, Brian. Something is not right with that person. And uh, you know, our mental health resources and the crisis that we have. You know, it's it's bad. You know, in realizing that, you know, if you want to stop school shootings right now, you put armed guards at the schools and they guard it. The end. No more school shootings. But what happens is people are like, well, that's just perpetuating gun violence and stuff like, no, like the only way that you're going to meet with a violent person. Right. So like for me, I carry a gun all the time. I don't carry a gun because I'm a violent person or I want to engage in violence, but I do understand that once a violent person does 
engage someone, the only way to stop that person is to either meet or exceed the level of violence that they are presenting. And I know that. So that's the only reason I carry a gun. I hope that those same bullets stay in that magazine forever, you know, but I'm not going to be caught where I don't have the ability to meet that level of violence or exceed it in order to save people, you know, and I honestly, I consider it my responsibility to protect all the citizens around me. You know, if I have the skills that are required and I understand what's happening and somebody's killing people, I'm going to handle it, you know, and I'm going to save as many people as I can. And I think if most of America had that same attitude, we would not face a lot of these problems. Like they might happen, but they would be, they would be dealt with a far quick, far more quickly than they have been in the past. You know, um, the whole gun debate back and forth, it's just, it's so polarizing. It's almost like the Christians and the Muslims, you know, it's, it's like, you know, for me, I'm, I've been raised up around guns, always had them, you know, um, I'm not much of a hunter, um, but I am a, like, I love sports shooting. You know, I participate in sport shooting sports a lot. Um, you know, so, you know, to me, I've had a gun since I was, I can remember my own, you know, since I can remember. And, uh, I've never once thought to myself, like, I'm going to commit any crime or violence or anything with that gun. You know, so why, when we talk about this problem, is our only response to take away my guns? That doesn't seem like it's going to have any effect, you know, and nobody wants to address the elephant in the room, which is crime is illegal. Making more laws is not going to stop crime. Right. You need to figure out what's causing it, you know, and I think, you know, the breakdown of the family, big time mental health problem not being addressed at all. They want a quick fix, which is uh, or eliminate guns, which will never happen. And uh, it's just going to it's keeping you're kicking the can down the road. And a lot of these activists on both sides of the aisle, they use this situation for their own benefit, whether that's political gain or whether that's. Uh, you know, now charity is such a such a, an industry, you know, how many anti-gun lobbies are out there that are just on the payroll that are just as long as the anti-gun lobby exists i have a six-figure a year job working as you know the the president of this freaking moms against guns or whatever it is you know and it's a it's a a shitty situation that probably could be solved easily if you could talk to the people that aren't talking you know I had a quite unique perspective. I grew up on a farm, so I had guns, which is rare in England, but we did. Um, and then I moved to the US and initially, it's not like I'm running around anti-gun. I'm just like, I don't want a gun myself. And even though I'd worked as a firefighter in some very dangerous areas and seen all kinds of shooting events, it never really been directed at me specifically. I take my son to an annual physical, the doctor, come back to the school, his middle school, uh, sorry, elementary school, and I'm just literally signing the paperwork to get him back to class. And all of a sudden, radios start going off. People are running around and they go, Mr. Gearing, we've got a code red. You're going to have to come with us. The doors lock behind me and they take me into kind of behind the reception area. And so I'm standing there and, you know, a firefighter paramedic. But and at that particular moment, one of the only children that actually has a parent by him, everyone else is, you know, hiding under a fucking desk somewhere. And I realized just how vulnerable they are. I realized how 
completely cut off they are. The only person who really knows what's going on is the principal. I'm literally fucking MacGyvering it, looking around this office going, all right, well, there's a paper guillotine. I could snap the handle off that and, you know, mm -hmm. use that. If someone comes in, there's an extinguisher. And so it really re changed the way I looked at it. And and I'd done um, Sheepdog Response with Tim Kennedy. Great class. Yeah. But I still hadn't owned a gun. And I went ultimately after that and got one because I realized... You know, I have a I have a go bag in my car. It's got extinguisher, it's got tourniquets, it's got bleed kits, and you know, I've got a weapon. And it's just a tool in a toolbox in case I would actually need to. And if I saw someone walking towards a school, clearly looking to cause harm, I can't throw a fire extinguisher at them. I need the appropriate <laughs> tool, like you said. So it was a really interesting perspective. And then couple that with for example, Lieutenant Colonel Dave Grossman's been on here a couple of times. You hear about the number of shooters that are stopped when they're actually challenged, when they're approached. The deterrent of an armed SRO, the appropriate person. I mean, I've, I've had experience negatively with my son with the middle school SRO. They had no fucking business being in that position. But you add those two together and then you have the conversation, the multifaceted conversation about these shooters, you know, the multi-generational trauma that tears these homes apart, the bullying, the video games, you know, the sleep mm -hmm. deprivation, the psychosis from psychiatric meds, you know, all those. And then you introduce a gun. Now you've got the perfect storm. But what's yep. maddening is these poor families are torn apart, their children murdered, and then, you know, the media divides like the fucking world war ii flanders fields excuse me world war one flanders fields and this family's you know what they're going through is completely disregarded it's turned into a political conversation and no one actually does anything at all to move the needle on stopping this happening again yeah well politicians are the wrong people to talk about it because they like to have the issue if the issue is solved it's gone there's nothing, then they don't have that to talk about. They can't say that I'm the one that's going to take care of guns or I'm going to be the one that's going to keep your guns because that's what they all want. That's why, again, I say that it's the uniparty. Like if you think that they don't know that my opponent is going to be the guy that's anti-gun and I'm going to be the guy that's pro-gun, I think you're just foolish. Like that's, that's just foolish, you know? And um, getting bringing government into it is like, that's, again, like it's, you know, government's a problem, it is the problem. I think if we if we dumbed our government down to the lowest level possible, the lowest level possible, then we could we could take care of a lot of these uh, community based things that that are causing us so much harm. I don't think you know? we could dumb them down any further. <laughs> they already are, but yeah. we could dismantle them at least. <laughs> as far as dumbing down, they're already setting the bar pretty fucking low. Oh yeah, that's what I mean. <laughs> I mean, like just dismantle the whole network. You know, like. In your town, you know, like around Florida, let's just say a state, you know, a state once they look to the federal government to like, how are you going to solve this gun problem? It's like, why are you waiting for the government to solve your problem? Just solve it in your state, solve it in your county, solve it in your town. You know, don't wait for the, for the, you know, for the federal government to solve it. Do it yourself, you know, do it yourself. And, and that's just part of it. Like people so much are looking they look to somebody else to do things for them instead of just taking responsibility and 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 fixing the problem locally you know everybody should be as involved in their state politics as they are in their federal politics you know how many people do you know that vote for president and they just vote party line they're just like i'm just voting for republicans 
Bro, if you did some studying, you would probably realize that a lot of those Republicans are crooked. They are no bueno, you know, and some of the Democrats are not bad. Pretty good, you know, and vice versa, you know, but people just generally don't think it. they just get lumped into I'm a Republican or I'm a Democrat and I'm just going to vote party line. And that's it. You know, we need we need seven more political parties in the United States to like balance everything out so that people actually start talking again instead of just being such a binary. I couldn't agree more, especially people start talking about what they stand for rather than what the other person did. Yeah. Yeah. You know, and crime, you know, the, the whole thing on gun crime, they, you got to hold the criminal responsible. That's it. It doesn't matter what the crime is or how they committed it. You have to hold the criminal responsible. You know, I don't know what's going on right now with all these these district attorneys that are not prosecuting crimes like that is beyond my comprehension. I have no idea why or how a local municipality would allow that person to continue to represent their city, you know, and there's many cities you can talk about across the country, but pick any one of them. And like, why is the city allowing that DA to continue? Why have they not been removed and replaced with somebody who's going to help the community? Well, let's stay on that for a second, because you and I spoke before we hit record. Um, and it's, it's, it's obviously two parts of this conversation. The proactive um, community policing element, how we restore relationships with law enforcement, but also, and I've never heard this mentioned before, your perspective as an operator on some slivers of the law enforcement community that are almost kind of falling into the tactical element when the separation between law enforcement and military, because it was a unique perspective I think people need to hear. I think that there is a growing uh, opinion of the law enforcement community that they've been militarized and uh, they are no longer like there to protect and serve. And I sympathize with this, uh, this notion, you know, I've trained several departments, HRT or SWAT units and things like that. And, uh, good groups of dudes, ladies, awesome, you know, but I'm going to tell you that some of them are hungry for action. And when I say action, they want to get into a gunfight. They want that, you know, and there's places that you can find that but I don't think the police force is where you want to look for it. You know, in my opinion, there's no reason that a police officer should ever wear camouflage ever. You know, you need to be there to be seen by the community as a protector, as a servant of the community, you know, understandably, you're going to have to deal with criminals. That's, that's great. That's part of the job. You know, it's part of the job when, you know, there's a lot of video that comes out now and it's it paints police officers in a negative light. And it's unfortunate that those occurrences happen. You know, they're on video. So we see them and we don't get to see the millions of interactions that they have that are perfect, you know. But what's getting attention are the negative things. You know, I don't believe that every department has to have an HRT unit, you know, if you know, whatever county, South Carolina out in Beaufort has 
you know, HRT, like why, why do they have an HRT? When's the last time that they needed an HRT element to respond? You know, you should have maybe an HRT unit at state level, you know, but that's it. You don't have to have them all over the place, but they do that. The departments do that in order to get money. Right. And when they get money and they start buying kit, that's what we talked about earlier. Now you have to start justifying the use of these units. Right. And unfortunately, a lot of these units are being used to serve warrants. Right. And then they serve warrants and then things go sideways. These people may be not trained up to the standard that they think they are. And then there's a unfortunate video on YouTube about whatever law enforcement, you know, department doing something not awesome. Or, and, or them and, getting killed themselves. Indeed. Yeah. You know, and it just adds to the negative image of law enforcement, you know? I mean, I don't think when I was a kid, I ever thought about talking back to a police officer or that a police officer was there to harm me. You know, I always thought like, you know, and I was a little skateboard punk, dude. Like I was probably not the most wholesome kid, but I didn't have any fear of the police, you know? And for everybody out there, it's like, oh, you're, you're, you're a little white kid. Like, no, cops going to be mad at you. Like, dude, I was a skateboard little punk rocker and they chased me off out of many mall parking lots and things like that. You know, they were not wholesome to me. Um, but I never thought that they were going to harm me in any way, you know? Um, and I skated with a lot, a large group of other kids and we never had problems like that. You know, we usually, we we're just kids, you know? So this, this media portrayal of the police is having a big negative impact on how cops are perceived. And the only people that are going to change that are the cops. You know, the, the police have to actively counter that narrative and they do that by doing good for their community. You know, keep it local, keep it local. You know, you should know what neighborhoods you're patrolling and you should know some people in those neighborhoods. If your area of responsibility is so large that, that you kind of don't know who's around, like you got to tell somebody, man, we got, you got to do something about that. You know, the, the perception of the police should be positive in the community and the people that are going to make that happen are the police. Which is a vicious circle as well. And I've had, you know, actual fellow officers on the show talking about this, that, you know, obviously there's an increase in the protective gear that they wear because it is very dangerous. And I've, you know, I, I know police officers where I work that were murdered in a traffic stop. But at the same time, the other side of the conversation is the more tactical our police officers look, the less, you know, the more that relationship is broken down, the more threatening they now appear. So it's a, it's a really hard, vicious circle to navigate. Yeah. I mean, it's not that tough, honestly. There's, there's yeah, like when you break it down, there are dudes that want that appearance. They want to look like that. If all of your kit is multicam, then you want to look like that. You know, our local, local police here, they wear full kit and it looks like they look like chips, dude. They have like khaki body armor with all their stuff on it, their badge. They, from far away, they just look like a thick Ponch and John from chips. You know, they look like police uniforms and they're not threatening at all. But when you put that guy next to a dude that's in OD green or camouflage from head to toe, that's the difference. You know, 
I've worn that uniform. That uniform does not scream, I'm here to help you. Okay. And when you put it on, there's, there's a mental, there's a mental change that happens, I think, you know? So when those guys stack up outside that house, it's just a different mindset. Well, there's two sides to the other part of the conversation. Obviously one that never gets spoken about in the media is why are the streets of America so fucking dangerous compared to Oslo or you name, you know, Lisbon, wherever it is. And that needs to be brought in because we are asking our men and women to operate in so much more dangerous conditions than, for example, where I'm from originally. Um, but that being said, you know, also the there's a, a resounding truth in the fact that if our officers are well trained, if they're in great shape, if they have done jujitsu or some applicable grappling art, that in itself is a huge deterrent. But then also the, like you said, the relationship with the community, the ability to to interact with people. Now, of all the special operations, special forces groups, the Green Berets are known to be the force multipliers. You are the ones that interact with indigenous forces and, and relationships are, are the you know your superpower in a way, your ability to to interact. So from that expertise, what if again king for a day what would you bring to the law enforcement community to be able to infuse that into the men and women in america in uniform i'm not sure that they're not doing those things you know um maybe just trying to get the word out that that's what they're doing more foot patrols you know get out on foot walk around the neighborhood introduce yourself i love like seeing video of like a couple of cops on the beat just like playing basketball with like the neighborhood kids. That's great. That's awesome. That's exactly what you need. You know, they're networking, you know, you're, you're, you're finding out what's, what's happening in your AO, you know, by talking to people, you know, you can't expect to sit in a squad car at an intersection for your shift and then go home and then do the same thing day in and day out and learn about the community. You know, you can't, you have to get out there and interact with people and learn about them, you know, Introduce yourself to the neighborhood, dude. Go door to door. Ding dong. Hey, I'm officer so-and-so. Uh, this is my beat, you know, and let me know if you need help. You know, things, little things like that, you know. I mean, it's a super, super tough problem, but I, I, those are the things that, those are the things that make the community appreciate your presence, you know, and generally, you know, even I'm, you know, you get the media just inundated with negative, you know, so I'm, I'm, susceptible to it myself you know but i know that most communities when you ask the locals do you want more or less police they say more we want more police more police you know why is it that those communities who are demanding more police are cutting the force why is that happening those people need to be more involved in their political process and ensure that the people who are representing them represent what they want and they're not there for their own end game you know it's uh, unfortunately, most people do not participate in the political process, which puts us in so much more problems, you know, because then we start bitching about it and everybody wants to fight each other, you know, where you I mean, how how can you bitch if you're not if you're not participating, you know? Um, it is it is a challenge, man. It's a big one. You know, like I said, I sympathize with the police, but I also understand that you have volunteered for a very dangerous job and 
And sometimes that's part of it, man. You got to risk yourself a little bit to protect the citizen. You know, you got to risk, you have to take risk. There's no point that you're going to have no risk, you know, now you can change the levels a little bit, but it's risky business. You know, when you're dealing with the worst of the worst of society and you put yourself in that position, you have to accept that, you know, um, um, there's a lot of opinions about who should do what, you know, but I, I think when it comes down to it, if you know your community, if you're uh, appreciated contributing member of that community, then those people generally are not going to throw you under the bus. You know, they're not. One perspective, again, from a firefighter, never worn law enforcement uniform, but it just seems insane to me. And it seems that, you know, if it was addressed, it would also make the streets safer for the officers and, you know, far less likely to go to lethal force for other people. But this one officer to a car. So you respond and, you know, say you're in a nightclub. If you're a normal sized dude and a bouncer picks on you, you're probably going to get your ass kicked. And just because yeah. you wear a police uniform, why is that any different? And the same, yeah. you do a traffic stop of this two of you and one of you's covering from the other side. The chances of someone drawing a gun is probably a lot less because they know they're going to get shot by the second guy. So to me, yeah. that deterrent element, not only down, you know, um, be, being able to be a lot more friendly because you are less threatened by the people that you're interacting with, but also maybe, you know, less um, resulting in deadly force either by the officer being murdered or, or vice versa, them ha having to kill the person because the force multiplier of two versus one, to me, through my complete white belt firefighter eyes, just seems like plain common sense. Yeah. I mean, I'm, I, I'm the same way. I've never worn a law enforcement uniform. Um, I'm speaking as a former army guy. So, you know, just in the things I know with dealing with uh, high levels of threat is the only way that I kind of couple the two, but you were absolutely right. Like, uh, you know, one guy, we always, two is one and one is none. That's common, right? For every level piece of kit that you have, two is, two is one, one is none. And I think the reason that we put one, officer into a squad car is because that department has to justify why they have 10 cars. You know, why don't you have five cars? You know, well, you got 10 officers, right? Put all the cars out there. I mean, it's something as dumb and simple as that. You know, you have to justify the amount of squad cars you have. So put an officer in every car and get them out there driving. You know, we have to justify the existence of this car, this fuel, this maintenance, all of these line item things that we have to justify has gotten us to the point now where we have officers patrolling by themselves stupid you know very stupid and at no point in any military organization have i ever been a part of where they were like go by yourself Same it's always battle buddy ranger buddy like you know it's always take a buddy you know never is it yeah just go alone you know but those departments are put into a put into a bind somebody's telling them to go alone you know, who is that person who is telling you to go by yourself? At what level do they think it's a good idea to be alone? You know, find that level and re replace it, you know, but that takes participation. Also, it takes time, you know. Brilliant. Well, I want to hit just one more area and then go to some closing questions so I can be mindful of your time. 
um, you transition out, you find yourself working as um, a military advisor for a film, working ironically with one of my friends, uh, a stunt friend. Um, so talk to me about the Thai cave rescue and how that kind of circled around to your time with the SEALs years before. Uh, that was, uh, <laughs> I mean, it was awesome. The whole experience was great met a lot of cool people it was awesome um my younger brother he worked in the film industry for a while as a military advisor and uh the he had worked with the second unit director at one point um and uh on a previous project and that guy called my brother and was like hey i got this thing going down it's in thailand and it's a bunch of diving Thai Navy SEALs and you know we want you to come on as a as a military advisor for it and my brother uh former Ranger Battalion guy he basically said like I don't know shit about diving and uh kind of not interested in it and uh you know Thailand but he's like I know a guy who was a diver and went to Thailand a lot and has a lot of time in Thailand so call this dude he gave him uh, Cape Kevin, my number. And, uh, he called me at the time I was working for Marsoc and I had, uh, a team of, uh, Marine Raiders up in Alaska training. And it just happened that we were at Denali national park and, uh, had some phone coverage. Like there's a lot of places in Alaska with no, no cell service, but we were in a spot, my phone rings, I pick it up and, uh, Hey, you want to go to Thailand? And I was like, eh, I'm going to need more detail. So give me all the details, you know? So we talked for a while. He tells me and, uh, I was like, that sounds, that sounds good, man. Let me call you back. And uh, so I called my wife and I was like, Hey, uh, I got an opportunity to go to Thailand for a little while and work on a movie. And uh, you want to go to Thailand for a few months? And she was like, yes. So <laughs> I hung up the phone and I called my boss at the time, who was a former teammate of mine, who was now in charge of the company I was working for. And, uh, at Camp Lejeune and I said hey Dave man I gotta quit he's like what's going on I was like man I got a job in Thailand he's like oh enough said dude have fun <laughs> you know so finished that trip got back to Camp Lejeune uh signed out of that place and then uh I got on a got on an airplane with my well my wife followed me got on an airplane this was during like super COVID time so I got over to Thailand and I had to quarantine for two weeks man had to go into quarantine. So I got to Thailand, was in quarantine for a couple of weeks and then got out and uh, went to work on this, the Thai cave rescue, which is a Netflix documentary about the, the rescue of uh, the soccer team that had gone into Tom Luang cave. I say that Tom Luang means cave anyway, but going into, into the cave and, uh, and uh, they were rescued by a contingent of air force uh, PJs and Thai Navy SEALs and uh, cave divers from around the world all kind of came together and uh, coalesced around this rescue effort. And uh, it's a miracle, a miracle that what they pulled off. Um, they rescued all the kids and their coach. They were trapped in a cave for a couple of weeks and they did. It was a huge operation. If you haven't seen it, go on to Netflix, Thai Cave Rescue. It's awesome. And uh, true story so it's it's pretty it's pretty epic what they what they pulled off what did your thai seal friend say about the one seal that they lost let's talk about him and put his story out there sam like that guy was a legend 
right in the Thai SEAL community. And uh, he was actually retired and they, they called on him because like he was such a stud, right? He was just an awesome dude. And he went there to assist, you know, do what he could. And uh, you know, he sacrificed himself to, in an attempt to rescue these kids, you know? So he's freaking, I mean, he's a hero, dude. Like he's a hero. This is not, in the context of like military heroism, it's, it's kind of a standout because he was on a rescue like operation, like, and uh, I mean, it's significant. Like I've, I've been in that cave. Like we went in the cave as part of the, as part of the filming and, you know, several of us and parts of the stunt crew, we went, we went back to where, you know, the, the kids were actually at and looked at it. And it was during the monsoon season. So there was water in there. We were there, but it was not nearly what had happened during the during the rescue attempt. And uh, there was still like parts of the kit and the ropes that were there from the rescue itself, like still there. So it was amazing what they accomplished. And uh, I can't like even after the fact, like going into that cave, dude, it's uh, the pucker factor is high. It's like, I mean, imagining that like completely underwater would it would be a, a challenge, you know, a challenge big time. Well, I appreciate you relaying that story. As I mentioned, there was a, a British firefighter that was part of the international diving crew. I'm trying to see if I can soak around and get him. I need to probably look at the yeah. the documentary first and see if there's any info on there. But uh, I mean, you know, such an incredible story. And again, I mean, I, I dive a little bit and that looked absolutely freaking terrifying to me what they had to do. Dude, I mean... There were some points like we're going in there where you're you're kind of like <laughs> scooching through the cave, you know, and it's like, whoa, dude, this is so sketchy. Like, you know, just being in there is sketchy. Couple that with being on scuba gear is like that just takes it to the next next crazy level, you know. But uh, I mean, it was an awesome experience. Met a lot of cool, cool people. And, uh, you know, I got to got to live in Thailand for a few months with my wife and she got to experience that it was it was really good i had a super great time still got lots of friends that i talk to almost at least every week from that uh from the filming of that you know and not to mention like the most of the crew was thai you know there was uh you know a western contingent from like netflix but uh you know most of the crew most of the actors, all of them were Thai. So it's, uh, it was really cool to, to be a part of. Amazing. Well, one part I, I just skipped, I just want to hit that quickly before we move to the end. The transition out of the military, out of the first responder communities can be jarring for many of us. You know, we have that sense of purpose. We have the identity as a soldier or a firefighter. You know, we have that tribe that we were surrounded with for so long. What was your transition like for you? think i'm still transitioning <laughs> uh i i think i'm doing good you know there's some moments where it's like i need to, my bros you know i need to be in the team room like i need to talk to people and stuff that's it's a challenge man it's just i don't know i mean there's got to be something unique obviously about being a part of a team or a fire crew or, you know, being a police officer, something that, that, you know, maybe it's just the, the, the threat level, whatever it is, but you know, you miss your boys, you know, you miss your crew. And uh, when that's gone, 
it's tough to I don't know if, what the word is, honestly. I don't know what it's just a challenge to do it, you know. And I try to stay in contact with everybody. And then, you know, you you life happens and then it's been weeks since you talked to whoever you're like, oh shit, man, I gotta call Hoblet. And like, you know, like I haven't talked to him in whatever however long, you know. So it's it's uh it is a you know, it's a challenge. It's just something that you it's another thing that you have to actively engage and continue to transition. You know, like I'm never going to not be who I am. So, you know, I've spent <laughs> freaking half a century being me, you know, so it is who I am, you know, no matter what job I think I'm always going to bring my past experience into it as everybody would. And so it's just who I am now. And, you know, I'm, uh, I'm open to new stuff. You know, I'm not going to say my way is the right way. My way is a way. You know, so I'm always open to learning new things and 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 continuing to to flourish, you know, but uh, it's definitely a challenge to to leave that behind. You know, I think I think I'm happy that now there's a there's more of a awareness amongst us, not really amongst the community. I, I don't want to say I don't care about that really. It's like, it's, I appreciate it, but I'm glad that there's more awareness amongst us as former action guys that we know that we needed to call our bros, you know, you need to stay in contact. If you haven't heard from somebody in a while, probably a good idea to pick up the phone and give them a, give them a ring, you know, and uh, just to, just to make sure, you know, just to make sure. Um, obviously we've, we've dealt with all the, or we've heard, <laughs> We've heard about all the, uh, my dog is barking at the mailman, dude. No um, worries. Yeah. We've heard about all the, you know, all the suicide numbers and all those things. And, uh, you know, it's kind of like the, it's kind of like the, the problem with these shooting. Like there's, there's a mental health aspect of this that cannot be ignored. And, uh, I think a lot of it has to do with the drugs, man, those psychotic drugs, like, antidepressants and stuff they affect you in a certain way and uh it's not good you know there's other means to deal with it and i i i think those drugs have a large part in the in the equation and i think more than we really realize even at this point than they do you know i had one of my friends who was in a in a in a situation in a tough situation you know he was he was one of those stereotypical guys and i mean he told me he's like you know the drugs didn't really make him feel better. He said they just made him not care about nothing. And that's not the same as, as feeling better, you know, not caring that you're depressed doesn't mean you're not depressed. It just means you don't give a shit no more, you know, and that's, that's not a good way. That's not a good route to go. So luckily for him, he was able to recognize that and cut himself off pretty much immediately. But, but it did recognize that response, like just a not, not a concern, you know. Well, we but, talked about the government a lot. I mean, one of the things I've spoken about recently, a huge amount is prohibition. I mean, so many of our, you know, our collective communities now are having incredible results from MDMA-led counseling, psilocybin, ayahuasca, ibogaine, you know, all these things that are quote unquote illegal 
and that are you know they're more than happy for our men and women to go fight for this country but they come back and then told they can't have the therapies that are actually working so much better than psych meds for a lot of people nothing is perfect for everyone that's the point but making that toolbox much bigger than it traditionally was i think is the answer for for most if psych meds work to bridge the gap fantastic but at no point is a psychiatric med fixing the nucleus of the problem it's a band-aid on a bullet wound yeah and those i mean all of those protocols you know psilocybin ayahuasca you know all of that stuff has been used for thousands of years why is it illegal now why i mean why i mean because if ayahuasca works then pfizer can't sell you head meds because you don't need them you know the reason that they're illegal is because the farm industry has a massive lobby in washington dc to make them illegal you know but this is where the states come in go ahead and make it illegal and the federal government, I don't care, but it's legal in this state, you know, in Oregon, every drug is legal, dude. every one of them, like you can get whatever you want, you know, where's the federal government kicking in everybody's door. They don't have the manpower to do it. You know, they don't have the manpower to do it. Do I think that's a good idea? Probably not. You know, it'll, it'll, it'll work itself out one way or another, but you know, um, it, lobbyists are, are, uh, another i we keep coming back to government here and i really don't want to do that but we keep coming back to it it's just like there's so much so much that they're involved in your life you know what i mean like every part of everything you do has got some kind of like government stamp of approval or disapproval on it you know i mean try to go fishing you know can't do it you know try to you know grow this plant in your yard and sell it can't do it you know, it's always the man, you know, telling you what you can and can't do. And that's crazy. You know, it's just crazy. It's like the expenditure of man hours figuring out what I can and can't do is is just not worth it. You know, why do you have high taxes? Because you got a whole platoon of idiots in D.C. saying that you can't grow plants and you got to pay them. You know, somebody said that was OK. Absolutely. Well, the other thing as well, when you look at the mental and physical health of a nation, if we were just thriving, then you'd be like, oh, it seems to be working. But when we are 70% obese or overweight and we consume 75% of the world's opiates and the list goes on and we have 20% of the world's incarcerated population, then you can't argue that. You know what I mean? It's time to swallow your pride and go, you know what? Norway, tell me more about your prisons. Finland, tell me about your schools. England, tell me about the NHS. That's one yeah. government kind of philosophy that I like. If it's run well, imagine a, a tax-based system where everyone has healthcare, but there's also there's a push then to make people as healthy as possible, which is not happening in the UK. They're getting fatter at the moment too. But if you do it right you use less and less and less of the tax money. Now, when I wheel in, you know, a baby that's struggling or an elderly person or, you know, someone who got hit by a car, they just like, okay, we're going to help you. Not, oh, I need your social so I can start the billing, which is what happens right. to every paramedic, any, you know, anywhere in America. The first thing that the patients ask is their billing information, not, you know, yeah. how can I help you? Yeah, man. Yeah. My brother, not too long ago, got back from a kind of like an extended European trip and he was like, dude, I ate like a pig the whole time. He's like, I ate like everything I wanted. I didn't turn away anything. 
drank beer like awesome. He's like, I lost eight pounds. Like, how did that happen? Like, you're just crushing beers and pizza and like pasta and like, you know, bread and like you lose weight. And it's, yeah, because our food is filled with garbage. In yeah, and it's pedestrianized. A lot of Europe, you probably walk a lot too. Yeah. You know, and yeah, that's, that's one of those places where government should be on our side, but they're not, you know, another place. But, you know, you're like, oh, you want to complete freedom. Like, we don't have that. We don't have that already. I would much prefer if we had not complete freedom and they were doing things on our behalf rather than against us, you know. Yeah, the food thing is a big deal. I owned a, one of my endeavors when I got out of the service. I had a CrossFit gym for several years and I kind of went full into the paleo and dieting and exercising crazy. But uh, I learned a lot about the food industry in the United States and the farm industry and all that stuff. And it was, again, not awesome. No, I had uh, Joel Salatin on the show a couple of times now, and he's the the farmer that's on Food Inc. and some of those other ones and just, you know, farming the way that people farmed a long time ago. And one of his yeah. books is called Everything I Do is Illegal. <laughs> I mean, that you know, no nothing needs to be said. He's a farmer, for Christ's sake. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it is wacko, man. And you know, it's, it's something when you like, when you really like just write a list of all the things that you, all the times that you yourself interact with the government in some way in a day. And it's like, whoa, dang. Like, I mean, so much stuff that they're involved in that they don't need to be, you know. Absolutely. But I think it's important to have these, because this isn't talking shit. This isn't complaining. This is just bringing problems out into the, the open air and the people that are in the conversations, which is what the, co the collective does really well, um, you know, are have important perspectives. You know, you're a soldier, you're a farmer, you're a nutritionist, you're a neuroscientist, whatever it is. And w the Venn diagram overlaps in the middle, which is the common sense. You know, do we need anarchy? Of course not. But is there too much government overreach in a lot of areas absolutely there is so where is that middle ground yeah i think the unique thing about the united states is that we have the power to turn the government off you know and i i believe that that power lies at the state level you know so the the citizens of the states need to if they're really really serious about kind of curtailing federal overreach is they have to get involved at the state level you know they have to and then those states can i mean the powers that are not specifically given to the federal government in the constitution are reserved for the states you know that means the only things that the fed is allowed to do are the things that the states and the people have said that they can do you know so the states have a lot of power and i think they i don't mm, the states, I think a lot of the politicians realize it, but I don't think a lot of the people realize it. I think a lot of people assume that the federal government trumps the state government and it's actually the other way around. You know, and I just I just think, you know, a lot of people in Americans think if we elect if we elect this guy or this girl or, you know, whatever, if this guy's the speaker, then we'll be good to go. And it's they're always looking for one person. It's not it. You know, that's why we have a republic, because the federal government doesn't matter to us as much as our state government does. I mean, even look at COVID in the United States, like the federal government never enacted any lockdowns or mandatory vaccine stuff or nothing. That was all done at state level. 
you know, and then those sub those subordinate, um, you know, jurisdictions, counties and stuff like they followed those or not. You know, at the time where I lived in North Carolina, it was very rural, coastal community. So it was a lot of fishing and farming. That was it. And they kind of opted out of the whole COVID thing. They were like, yeah, we're not doing that. We got to go fishing. Like, that's how we make our living. We got to fish. So, yeah, we're going fishing. And no, no, who could do anything about it? Nobody, you know, because the, the fact of the matter is that the, the state governments have the power to to either lock them down or not lock them down or, you know, and I think because the states are so much closer to the community, it doesn't seem like it maybe in some bigger states, but you like you can walk into your state capitol building and like state your case, you know, like that's more more viable than or more feasible than going to D.C. to try to do the same thing, you know, but you can do it at the state. Yeah, you can do it at the state level. And I think that will have more impact. So focus on your state, man. Beautiful. Well, that's a good place to, to go to some closing questions then quickly. So the first one I love to ask, is there a book or are there books that you love to recommend? It can be related to our discussion today or completely unrelated. Mm. Okay. Um, completely unrelated, I guess. But like, uh, love it. It's a Vietnam book. It's by Frank Miller and it's called Reflections of a Warrior. And uh, he was a legendary Green Beret, um, uh, Mac V. Saw guy in Vietnam. And uh, the school where I worked at the very end of my career in the Army, um, referred to as Range 37, um, the compound is named after in his honor. And uh, he's, uh, I don't want to give away a lot of the book. It's rad. It's, it's very easy to read. And uh, it's just a cool story of his experience in Vietnam. It's like a memoir, I guess. That's very, very awesome. Um, any history books, man? Grab history books and start reading them. Um, oh, man, I can't remember them now. Um, have you heard of the book? Uh, there's another memoir, another war memoir. <laughs> like, I, I'm, I guess that's what I do. But like uh, the Storm of Steel, Storm of Steel. I've never heard Hans- that one, though. No. Hans Jünger, he's a he's a German infantryman, World War One, and he goes all the way from day one on the train on the way out to the front, all the way to the end. He gets wounded in the end and evacuated, but it's almost the it's almost at the end of the war anyway. But super rad book. There's a couple of scenes in it that were that were very uh, similar to things that I had experienced and uh, it's really good. I'll give away one, but he's uh, I can't remember which battlefield he was at, but he found a place and in the town there was, it was all bombed out. Right. And, uh, but there was this one corner of a library that had basically was still standing and there was debris falling around it, but he kind of crawled in there and there was a leather chair and like a row of books and like some light coming through. So he just sits in this chair in the middle of like world war one, you know, right behind the front and sits in this chair and smokes a pipe and reads this book that he just pulled off the shelf. And it's like completely peaceful, quiet, you know, you can hear birds and stuff. And it's just like, here I am in like the middle of war torn Europe, sitting in a leather chair, reading the book that the sun's shining on, you know, it was just 
kind of a cool moment in the book. Um, that's a good one. Storm of Steel. Brilliant. I've never heard of that. I'm going to look that one up. Thank you. Yeah. All right. Well, you mentioned the Thai Cave Rescue. What about any other documentaries or films that you love? I'm kind of a romantic with the World War II history. You know, I just think it was a great time in American history and seemingly we were doing the right thing for the right reasons and everybody was all on board and it was great, you know. So I really love that generation, that era. So all of those, you know, World War II docudramas are awesome. The Band of Brothers, you know, Saving Private Ryan, all those things are great. I'm really anxious to see the new one coming out on Apple about the uh, 8th Air Force. Um, that's probably going to be awesome. Um, I just love that, that era. It was like kind of the birthplace of like the special forces lineage was world war two, you know, like the modern Rangers kind of birth there and Carrick Fergus. And like, it's, there's just so much like history that's kind of touchable, you know, like we still have dudes who participated in that, you know, um, this year, well, next year, excuse me, next June will be the 80th anniversary of the invasion of Normandy. And it's probably the last like big zero or five year mark that we will have veterans who are participants actually present. So this would be a big one. If you, uh, if you ever thought about going to Normandy, this would probably be the year to do it next year. Absolutely. I actually get to sit down with two Iwo Jima vets in December and do an interview for uh, one of my friends who's having a fireside chat. And uh, yeah, I mean, sadly, they're, you know, they're all late 90s now, so it's not going to be much longer before they're going to be joining the World War One veterans that we lost not too long ago. Yeah, man. Yeah, my grandpa was a World War Two guy. He was at Normandy and did he was a Navy guy. So they were in Normandy and then they shipped off to the Pacific after and he did the whole Pacific Rim basically. And, uh, yeah, he's one of my, I took a lot from his example, you know, gruff, another gruff dad, but, but squared away, dude. Um, I don't know where I was going with that. <laughs> <laughs> Just awesome. Yeah. Those guys are important to our history, man. So learning all that stuff is good. And I'm, I've actually taken, I'm on my second history class now. This is just, uh, modern it's called modern history and it's basically about the industrial revolution and stuff it's more of a world history class and uh and uh it's very interesting it's another thing you you had said earlier about you know everybody has their own kind of two cents you know whether you're a fireman or a cop or a soldier or a, a teacher a farmer whatever you know well i'm a college student now so being that i'm an old one you know i have a lot of life I have a lot of life behind me that I can kind of reflect on as I'm learning, you know, which is kind of, I think a unique, a unique perspective. I wish sometimes that I could give that to the younger students, you know, some, sometimes I think that they are obviously idealistic, you know, they're young and uh, they do things. I think just be just a little bit of naivete, you know, they're, you know, they're young. So things they say are kind of, you're like, nah, you know, but, but it's cool to, it's cool to be back in the learning environment. You know, I haven't really been there in a long, long, long time. And I enjoy it a lot. You know, I did a, did a history class last term and it was the basically 1914 until 
1946. So it was one, the mid, the between war years and then World War II. We kind of breezed through World War II real quick, but it was very, very awesome. And uh, I took away a lot from that class that I didn't know before that I, of course, you know, I thought I knew everything, but there's a lot out there that, uh, that are still left to learn. So any history books, go for it. Now, you mentioned about obviously the World War II generation being amazing. Are there any people that you'd recommend to come on this podcast as a guest to, to speak to the first responders, military, and associated professions of the world? Again, it can be any background. I only feel comfortable recommending like kind of people I know. Um, and uh, given, I guess, kind of like perspectives is a good thing. And he's kind of in your shoes too. He's a Falklands veteran. Um, his name's Mark Spicer. Uh, I can connect you guys via text or Instagram or something like that. Uh, I think I, I tried to get him on collective also, but uh, I met, we met, I was, uh, Mark is a, he was a Falklands veteran and uh, he big sniper British army sniper guy and extraordinaire and uh he had gotten he was working at the time for mcmillan group which what was damn what year was this dude this was like maybe 2008 or nine something like that and uh i was a team sergeant for a uh sniper team took my team out to arizona to train with them and uh we spent a few weeks together training doing some desert antics and uh, we've been friends ever since then. I mean, we've stayed in contact since that time. And uh, I just recently stopped at his place in Arizona when I was coming out here to Oregon. But uh, he's got an interesting story. He's written a couple of books. And uh, if you dive into that a little bit, I mean, I think he would be a very good, good, good person to talk to because he has a lot of he's tenured and he's dealt with some things. Beautiful. Well, thank you. I actually just had two Falklands vets on probably about four, four and five months ago now, um, because that's what I grew up in. I was a little eight-year-old boy when that happened in my country. So um, I think that would be an amazing conversation. So thank you. And if you could, if you could link up with Messi since he's in Florida now, that would be awesome. Oh, yeah. I'll make that happen. Um, yeah. Me and Lionel are like this. <laughs> actually, that yeah. being said, I just watched um, the David Beckham documentary on Netflix. I've got to say yeah. that was fantastic. I was so yeah. impressed. Yeah, there's supposedly there's one coming out about Messi on Apple. Okay. Uh, his I guess his plan, you know, that he's gonna what he's gonna do. And uh, who's your team? Premier League team. Um, I don't have one. The reason being, growing up as uh, a young boy, firstly, my dad wasn't a huge football fan, which is normally how kids, you know, get mm. their team. But secondly, I grew up in the eighties when men were murdering each other over 11 dudes in shorts so even uh, as a young boy i was just like this is madness so ever since then i've always been england so if england plays i'm I'm all for it but um uh, if i was geographically i lived in north london for a few years so arsenal would be technically the closest like premier league team that i've been you know arch rival, bro. <laughs> arch but, rival but i don't so i love tottenham Tottenham's been like I watched Premier League for a long time, and then have you ever heard of the, the TV show? It's a man. Is it on Prime? And it's called uh, 
All or Nothing, I believe. All or Nothing. I don't think I've seen it. it. No. It's a series, and basically what they do is they embed a media team with a football club or uh, an American football team or a college program or something, and they follow them through the whole season. So, like, you watch the whole season of these guys, like, doing their thing. And, of course, you get to know all the personalities, you know. And uh, I stumbled on that show. And first, the first one I watched was about the All Blacks, New Zealand. Awesome. Just so rad. And uh, then I watched the one about Tottenham. And then that's my team now, dude. Because, like, I knew all the guys. Like, yo, this is my team now. And it was during the COVID, big when COVID blasted in England. So they have to go through all that stuff. And it was great. And now, because of that show, I follow – now I'm following Bundesliga because Harry Kane went to – germany and i'm like just spreading out it's like it's pretty rad but that show is really cool to watch all or nothing it's uh it's interesting to note the difference between the european programs and the american programs as well okay i have to watch that interesting again the parallels something about the way that they it's just the way that they do things you know the way you have a football club in europe that has you can play for Tottenham from the time you're four until the time you're 50, you know, because they have, you know, all the kids teams are all part of the club and goes up and they're free. You know, they kids don't pay to go there. They're just snatched out of the crowd by the team, you know, so it's different than America. I think the reason we don't have a strong football or soccer presence in the world is because our clubs, you have to pay for, you know, yeah, there's so much money in the travel ball and all that stuff. Right. Yeah. And in Europe, they just get a kid that's good at soccer, man. And then they pay for him. And then later on down the road, they can sell that player to another team, you know. But it's just a different, it's a very cool, very cool program. I'd start with the All Blacks, though, because that'll that'll set the hook and you'll be you'll be like, I gotta watch all these. Brilliant. Yeah. Well, I wanna I wanna get some people from the All Blacks on because obviously at one point the the leadership side of, of their team was pretty phenomenal. But mm-hmm. it's interesting as well. I've had this observation and discussed with a lot of people that were high-level athletes or high-level coaches. Um, but where I see a huge contrast is in the UK, people play football when they're little and then you graduate school and then you keep playing. A lot of people, they'll keep playing sports. And whereas yeah. in America will forge this high, high level of performance out of our children, but a lot of times at the detriment of their wellness. So you have these uber athletes at 18, 19, 20, and then these Uncle Ricos that are now, you know, totally deconditioned and broken at 30. And so I think we do a disservice of maybe, you know, looking at the wellness element of college and high school sports in America and going, okay, how can we find that happy medium between I want to win my games, of course, but I don't want to have an 18-year-old that needs ACL surgery that should you know, really not be seeing a surgeon for another 40-plus years. I think American youth sports have become a place that the kids are striving to get a scholarship. They're trying to get a scholarship, and that's it. You know, In sports, I believe sports exist to teach character. You know, they're there to teach sportsmanship, um, fair play, um, camaraderie, teamwork, all of those things. That's why sports exist. But we've lost track of that in the States and we just push for, and parents are probably a prime motivator of this. 
because of financial reasons, they want their kid to go to the best school. So they think their only way to get there is to play football. So you got to play football. You got to play football. And then that becomes the focus. And uh, it's unfortunate. But I, like you said, in Europe, you know, they play sports for the team. You know, it's part of life and learning and team work. And it's just, it's a different, it's a different. I think when you watch the uh, All or Nothing, you'll see a little bit of that come out once you watch, uh, I think it's the, the Cowboys, the Dallas Cowboys episode. Watch a couple of the others first and then watch the Dallas Cowboys and you'll see like ah, big difference. Brilliant. Yeah, I'm having to pull the reins on my son because he's all about scholarships and he's a track runner, um, which mm. and I'm like, you know, encouraging him as far as the track side, but telling yeah. him like, you know, you can get into college first. You might earn a walk-on place and then a scholarship year two, but making sure that it's not the scholarship first and then the running that it's, you know, if you love yeah. running, then run, you know, but if you fall out of love of running, then mm -hmm. we'll find a way of you going to school, you know, a different way. But yeah, it needs to be a love for that career, a love for that sport. Not yeah. like you said, the logistics of scholarships and college fees and all those things. Yeah. My daughter played travel. My youngest daughter played travel volleyball her whole life. She, went to college, played college ball two years in. She, she's like, I'm over it. Done. Join the air force. <laughs> like, she's like, I'm out of it. Like it just got to be a, you know, like there's never a point in her life. I think that she remembered not playing volleyball, you know, like not playing it, you know, she's, she's killing it now. She's loving it. You know, she's over in England, but like you said, it becomes like such a, a drive to, you know, perform, I guess that that it becomes a it becomes a job and no longer a fun part of your life so absolutely well the last thing i want to ask you before we make sure everyone knows where to find you speaking of sports and and wellness what do you do to decompress there's a there's a few things that i do um i mean getting out is a big one just being outside at some level you know, I'm in an awesome spot right now. Being in Oregon, the hiking here is super rad. You know, like I can five minutes away is Smith Rock, you know, State Park. And it's an epic place um, to go. Like just tons of that. Uh, I like to ride my motorcycle, just kind of get in my own space and my own headspace and just ride. You know, there's a lot of cool canyons around here. Go on the twisties and, and just kind of quiet your mind. You know what I mean? I can't, uh, I've found that in old age now that I can't like meditate. Like I can't just quiet my mind by sitting or even reading. Like I can't, I have to be, I have to be focused on something, right? So writing, probably writing a little bit, like right on the line is that you have to stay, you have to pay attention. You know, you have to be focused on a thing so that you can't, you can't have, thoughts in the background like muddling up your focus you know um i really like shooting sports you know that's uh that's another thing to me is med meditating you know um coming comes along with that is uh you know reloading ammunition is a good way to quiet your mind because you got to pay attention you know you have to be aware even using a progressive loader you have to still be switched on and watching everything function and making sure that the powder drops are still clicking along and that you have powder in the machine and there's things you do, but it's doing something that re 
requires focus is kind of where I find peace, whatever that might be, you know, um, I like skydiving, you know, um, unfortunately I didn't do a lot of skydiving this, this summer because the drop zone's like three hours away, which garbage. But, uh, I was really disappointed when I got to Oregon because I had done a recon and there used to be a drop zone, like 40 minutes up the road. And I was like, sweet, man, I'm just going to go to the drop zone like every week and they closed. So now I got to drive over the mountain, but you're lucky, dude. You're in like one of the, one of the, uh, skydiving like meccas of the United States right there in the land is a good spot. Super good spot. I jumped there last summer, probably 10 times, 10 times or so, but good spot. They got a nice little, nice little restaurant there too. Um, yeah, just focus, man. That's my thing. Something that I can think about. And, uh, if I like am allowed to let my mind wander, I'm thinking about 40 different things at once. And that's, that's not relaxing. Beautiful. Yeah. I found jujitsu is pretty good for, for that, because if you do start wandering, then they end up choking you. <laughs> so it's no, a good reason. You know, yeah. Yes. You know, immediately you weren't paying attention. Exactly. <laughs> but uh, I've actually just stumbled across another thing. It's a, it's an app now, but it's, it used to be in SEAL teams, uh, NASA, all these these high performer spaces, but it was a big $6,000 machine. But now with smartphones getting so advanced, they've made it into an app, but it's called Nucalm, N-U-C-A-L-M. And Nucalm. I'm, yeah, and it's amazing because it's passive. So you basically lie down, put an eye mask on and, and it as if you were going to take a nap for 20, 30 minutes. But what it actually does is neuroacoustic. So you listen to music, but under that music is this kind of undulation that is telling your brain to downregulate. I have to say, you know, hand on my heart, and I've chased them to become a sponsor of the show. I chase them because I think it's so bloody good. But for me, having a monkey mind from hell, that is one of the most incredible pieces of technology i've come across in a long time so just uh sow that seed and see if that's something and they've got a free trial for a week as well so you don't even have to commit but uh phenomenal absolutely phenomenal cool icon i think i got it yeah newcom n-u-c-a-l-m n-u yeah all right well the very last thing that i'm sure a lot of people are you know are fascinated by this conversation if people want to learn more about you or reach out on social media where are the best places um, the best place is be on Instagram. That's, that's my, that's where I exist on social media. I have a Twitter, but I don't really Twitter much. I just, I, it's not, it's not, uh, beneficial for anyone. Um, so I just stay off there, but new, uh, coach whiskers, coach underscore whiskers is my, my Instagram handle though. Uh, I'm right now I'm in pursuit of my private pilot license. And I thought that I might uh, I might change my handle once I acquire that, but I've been running Coach Whiskers for many years now, and uh, that's where I'm at. Brilliant. Well, Travis, I want to say thank you so much. It's been such an amazing conversation. Like you were asking, what are we going to talk about when we first started chatting? I'm like, I have no idea, yeah. but we'll get there. And we've gone all over the place, which is what I love about these conversations. So I want to thank you so much for being so generous with your time today. Hey, no problem, man. Thanks for having me. And uh, I'm looking forward to being down in the land next. And we can uh, maybe I can drag you, out, drag you out to the drop zone and attach you to somebody. 
Absolutely. I've done two skydives, both tandems. One was in New Zealand years ago, and then the last one was in above the pyramids in Cairo out of a Russian helicopter. So, uh, <laughs> so yeah, uh, it's pretty lucky. The only two I've done so far are pretty epic. Yeah, my, you're gonna. It's gonna be hard to top the, the the pyramids. My brother jumped there, and he's like, "Dude, my brother jumped last year. They did. He was part of the seven and seven. They did seven continents in seven days." And uh, they did Antarctica, and he's like, out of all of it, the pyramids was like the topper. It was just surreal, you know? So you're going to have a hard time, but it's cool to go by yourself, and you're right there, dude. you got to go. Yeah.